fight And we don't have to kill Everybody in the whole wide world Really just needs to chill No, we don't have to fuss No, no, no We don't have to fight Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Just Chill with Oliver George. This is episode number 43, and we've actually got two guests this week. But before we get to them, I want to remind you, if you're watching this on YouTube right now and you would prefer audio only for whatever reason, you can access that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other places like that. Contrary to that, however, if you're listening to me right now and you didn't realize there was a visual side to this show, then please come check it out on YouTube. However you choose to enjoy the episode, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, like, follow, share, whatever the case may be on the platform that you are using. It really helps me to keep growing this show, and I do truly appreciate your support. So if you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Finally, if you want to hit me up, maybe with a cool guest idea or some general feedback, you can reach me at justchillpodcasting at gmail.com. Now, the guests for this week were J.F. Frenette and Scott Brown, two local comedians and filmmakers who have created this great documentary called Comedy 19, The Last Laugh. It's about to be released to everybody on March 5th, so uh, really looking forward to that. But I saw this. I'm featured in this. Uh, there's so many great comedians that you get to hear their perspectives on on just what exactly COVID has done to the comedy industry in Canada. Uh, it's really, really a great film, so I hope you all check it out when it comes out. But before that, enjoy this great talk that we had where we talked about uh, the film, obviously, but we also spoke about many things from crazy jobs we've had in the past to Scott telling us about the time he almost died while on vacation. Um, it was just a really great, I think it was almost two hours, a really great long chat with a couple of good friends. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much. So what's up, dudes? That's, uh, you know, how are you guys doing? First off. Great, man. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, man. Yeah. Doing, uh, doing fantastic. Well, I remember last time I spoke to you last week, you had just like mangled your car in a bit of an incident. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to make sure I got my, yeah, Facebook is turned off. I think social. Network. I guess this is a podcast when you ask us like, how are you doing? And you don't expect just to be like, fine. Like, oh, okay, let's talk about like all the shit that we're going through right now. You know? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, like interesting wow. to explore too. I'd be down to go down that avenue. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about well, I actually, when I came on your show back in the fall, we talked a lot about mental health. I think it's a good thing to talk about, you know, and the, the pandemic has definitely been taking its toll on people in a lot of uh, those areas. And I know personal friends of mine that I've already lost to situations like that um, during the COVID period that were not COVID related, but I think we're rooted in mental health and addiction issues and stuff. So I'm uh, yeah. If, if I ask you, how are you doing? And you, and you want to really give her and, and open up, we can definitely go down yeah kind of weird actually i'm i'm almost i mean I've, I've definitely like worked hard to get get to where i am but um considering like how i've just had this like really shitty like i mean as i say you know, bad things happen in threes right well i had my big three things and it was like you know i'm actually doing a lot better than i probably would have been a couple of years ago so i'm kind of proud of myself for that you know <laughs> what were the big three i uh, got laid off my job and then my brother tried to kill himself and then uh i had the car accident it's like all in like two weeks <laughs> Damn. yeah i remember you telling me about both those things that's fucked up man uh well i hope your brother's uh you know on the road to recovery from that situation and i'm very happy yeah, to slowly, lose slowly but surely you know yeah. my, par my parents ended up going out to back out to pei they were there from like july until uh new year's and they came back to London, Ontario, and they were back for barely like a month and a half. And then they just ended up having to go right back. <laughs> well, 
Well, it's a dark time to be living in, you know, it's easy to, to lose yourself in all the chaos of, of the way things are headed right now. And hopefully not for that much longer, but no one really knows the uncertainty is a big part of it too. I think everyone just feels like they're stuck in this never ending, like, you know, calamity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I, I, I know that he is, uh, I know he always has been kind of a troubled kid, but, um, you know, I mean, he's, He's actually a really good father. I mean, all things considered, I'm kind of surprised at how I never would have thought he would have been a, such a good dad. But I think now that his kids has kind of got into the, um, the terrible, you know, just got past the terrible twos into the threes and stuff. I think now he's not as uh, accustomed to dealing with that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, kids, yeah. Every year there's new stuff. You got to keep adapting for sure. It, it could be a stressor. Um, anyways, well, I mean, that all ties into part of the reason I'm interviewing you guys right now, which is because of the film that you guys have created, which is going to be premiering soon and then eventually being released to the public later that week. Um, so there's so much going on with this film. I really want to just explore everything about it, but um, can you explain just in general for people who have no idea about your film, which I should say is called COVID-19, the last laugh. But uh, if you can give kind of the pitch and explain what the film's about for people that are unfamiliar. Uh, it was actually, sorry, Comedy 19. Oh, Jesus, time. I said COVID-19, my bad. <laughs> Comedy 19. You know, that was the play on COVID, but... Yeah, no, I butchered that, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it, it's, I guess, in a certain way, a little bit uh, self-explanatory, but just about how it's about, you know, comedy and, and what's been going on in the lives of club owners and comedians and just everybody that's involved in the Canadian comedy community pretty much from March until, until this year, you know, and all the different lockdowns and like what it's done to, you know, the ability for people to do comedy, what, what comedians are doing to like evolve, you know, like there's a lot of these uh, outdoor shows and zoom shows and, you know, people just finding uh, just different methods of, of doing comedy to, to adapt. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of got a good twist of, you know, sad, depressing stuff with also some optimistic, hopeful stuff about, you know, what people are, are willing to do and prepared to do to, you know, keep comedy alive. And I think that it leaves viewers with a good sense of optimism, but also wants to carry the message that, you know, like things are still on thin ice, you know, and that we really need people to, to do what they can to support comedy because it really can, uh, disappear very easily and a lot of bars and clubs can very easily go to business right now after these lockdowns and you know what does that do for people especially in in a pandemic who like really need you know to stay positive and, and stay in good spirits you know comedy is more important now than ever right yeah definitely um and a lot of people are really struggling especially people who that was their paycheck people who were regular working comics you know mm. those people are being hit the hardest there's a lot of pe people like me who kind of dabble in comedy but it's not my main source of income you know it's it's not what i do um so i really feel for those people who their livelihoods were just ripped away from them you know and and a great point that michael lifshitz makes in your film was about how it's ridiculous that comedy well this is more of a funding thing but how comedy doesn't get the same respect as like theater and stuff like that where if, if you were to take your comedy bit and go do it and present it as a one man show, all of a sudden you might get funding from the government to help you out because now it's theater. I thought that was a really interesting uh, takeaway from the film. Yeah, I know it's kind of redundant in a way how it's like, you know, they basically are, there's a very thin line between the two of them, but it's just the way that it's uh, it's seen in the eyes of the government. But like, there's, there's a lot going on with cask. Um, you know, the Canadian association of stand-up comics are, are definitely pushing forward. And I'm hoping that, 
as well too that the film can help bring bring light to that and have more more like like not not comics obviously because everyone about that knows it it's like the actual patrons of comedy that don't realize that comedy is not even an art form like a lot of people i've talked to have just said oh i i didn't know that i thought it was you know so they're really kind of oblivious to it so yeah it doesn't get the respect it really deserves even though getting no respect (laughs) yeah (laughs) well it's it's i don't see why it wouldn't classify as art I mean, it's an expression, it's a performance, it's all those things that you would say about music or theater or whatever. And, and to be just sort of secluded from that is, is really hard to wrap your mind around. Well, um, if I can chime in on that, um, Mark Breslin had a really cool point in Jeremy Hoffs too, on that is like comedy was profitable. Like you could make a living from just doing comedy without any grants, without any funding from the government. It was like an industry. Whereas, you know, if you're doing, I don't know, contemporary dance or abstract art or something, and there might not be a market for that kind of stuff, you actually need some funding from, from the government to actually be able to make a living. Um, but Jeremy Hotz was like, you know, who the fuck cares? Like if, if they don't call us an art, if they don't respect us, like we're still going to be comics, we're still going to do it. And there's something like a bit punk rock about that too. That for sure. Admire. And uh, yeah, so I, I thought there was a, and I think in the documentary, we sort of capture different stances on that as well. I mean, for sure, it sounds like it'd be cool if we could get some funding for, especially if we want to do like a comedy special or travel, like, you know, musicians get touring money sometimes from the government, from grants and like the Ontario Arts Council, they'll give money to bands to go travel across Canada. And like, that'd be great if we could get that as comedians. But you know, some of the guys were saying like, you can actually do that and make a living already because you're not paying six guys to play, like, you know, lug all your instruments. You're like just one guy and you can take it. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah. The, it's just you and the microphone. So yeah, it's a lot more simplistic in that sense and easier to just take it wherever you want. Yeah. That's a good point. That's the whole, yeah. That's what I love about comedy too, is how democratic, like, it's just so accessible for anybody that, yeah as a notepad and a voice and boom, you're on, you can get on stage. Yeah. That's so true. A lot yeah. less hurdles to be able to uh, feel like you're competing or not Maybe That's the wrong word, but you know, getting into that comedy arena and putting yourself out there. Well, that's actually kind of how, how I started doing stand up was because, you know, like when things were not really the greatest for me with like my old business and I was just like working nonstop and I was in a city, I didn't know people, you know, and I kind of fell fell out of my like musical groove and I was like, you know, I don't really, yeah, there's a lot more work that goes into trying to get with a band and practice and play a show versus, you know, you could literally write a set and then like that same night go up and perform stand up. So it's kind of, or you could even just wing it, you know, like it's a very different uh, type of art form. Yeah. So that was kind of what really drew me to it is that it gave me the ability to kind of uh, not replace music. Cause I mean, I still love music uh, just as much as comedy, but it was a good, bridge to still get out there and perform when music just didn't seem like uh like an option you know yeah so and that's one of the nice things is that really it's a really uh easy thing for anybody to do that doesn't really require the same exact uh you know you don't need like multiple people but i think that's why people confuse it as an art form is because you know a guy who's like really new can be up there and be really funny and you know a guy who's been doing it for 10 years you know, they can sound almost the same, you know? And I think that yeah. like practice with music or other art forms is a lot more noticeable when you've been doing it for one yeah. year, two year, three or four years, you know? It's a lot so, easier to pick out the rookie. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the beautiful thing about, about comedy too. I mean, there's a lot of guys that start doing comedy and they just, 
they just kick ass right away. Just you know? natural. And, and yeah, exactly. You know, they're yeah. just, they've been, they've been doing comedy their whole life. They just didn't do it on stage. Right. Yeah. Um, so when did you first try comedy or both of you guys, actually, that's a good question for both of you that I want to know. When did you both get into comedy? Uh, for me, I tried, uh, in 2018, April, 2018. So going like on almost three years. Now. Yeah. Um, and actually going back to like mental health, uh, and all that, I think when I look back on it, I think I, I was like in a depth of a depression and I had sort of had this mindset of like, you know, just fuck it. I'm just going to do whatever. And if my life gets so miserable, I'll just kill myself kind of deal. So I almost, it was almost like a, like, I'll just do, I always wanted to try to stand up comedy and I was, I was afraid of it. And now mm. I was at a point where it's like, you know, fuck it. I don't care. I'll just, yeah, you felt like you had nothing to lose really. Yeah. Nothing to lose. And it was very cathartic in that sense to actually face my fear, bomb hard. And like, that was always my big, biggest fear. You know, it was like bombing on in front of people and that feeling all that. And it was, it was terrible. It was, it was fucking gave me anxiety <laughs> for like two weeks, but having gotten over it, I'm like, yeah, now I can bomb. And you know, I fucking bombed on swizzles last Saturday. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Another one in the books. You're like, you know, yeah. It makes you feel a little more like you can handle shit and, and you don't have to be so uh, torn apart by every little misstep. You can just kind of take it in stride and be like, whatever, you know, it's it's working towards the goal still. Well, there's something about facing, like imagining when you have anxiety and you, you think of the worst and then you actually live the worst and then you come out of the end and you're like, ah, oh, you know what? The worst, my worst fear wasn't even that bad. Yeah, I'm still here too. Healing about that. Yeah. I think. I can definitely relate to what you said about um, trying stand up because you kind of just were at a, a super frustrated point where you just didn't even care and, and the fear had no power over you anymore. Because I've said this on the show before, um, I didn't try stand up until, uh, you know, nine months or something like that, maybe a year after I got divorced. And, and it was just like, you know, yeah, maybe it was a little longer than that. Actually, it might have been a couple of years later, but um, it was 2015 when I first tried comedy and it was you know, a couple of years after I gotten divorced and I finally just felt like, uh, I don't know if reborn is the word, but you know, you go through something big like that. And then all of a sudden you feel kind of like it's a good reset point for the way that you view yourself and the things that you might be capable of. And, and you're maybe a little more willing and you have that armor of just like not giving a fuck and, and kind of just being like, eh, I'm almost 30. Like I just got a divorce like a couple of years ago. Like why, why the fuck not? And, yeah. uh, you know, that that's my own experience that like trauma or, or tough situations can really be a good uh, durability factor for what you're willing to, to go up against in the future because you just feel a little bit like, okay, I went through that and I'm relatively unscathed. Let's see what, what this is going to do to me, you know? Um, but yeah, so I can relate to that point. There was a, there was a point where I remember like being at work after, you know, I have a desk job, government job, and I'm an economist by day and being in meetings and having lost my filter. And like, because I was doing stand up, I was like, almost like now I just, you know, had nothing to lose. I was like joking, whatever, but saying shit that I probably wouldn't have said before in meetings. And I had to be careful, like, okay, 
this is like my I have to this is my hobby this is my night persona I can't like yeah. let that bleed in too much into my regular life so that was an interesting thing that I noticed about doing stand up that how it changed my whole perspective of things and how people sometimes I'm like what the fuck like just say what you want or say what you're what you're thinking and you know people are so reserved sometimes and like in work settings and meetings people are super polite and like trying to be like yeah well happens. very fake honestly yeah, very fake super and, like, phony yeah yeah i'm like you know i'm doing stand-up at night coming here for a meeting you know at 8 9 a.m like what the fuck are you talking like you know sort of like it is hard when you start doing stand-up though to separate that I mean, I guess some people are, they just walk on stage and they're themselves. But I think most people, it takes a while to get to that point. And when I first started, I remember thinking like the same thing that it was like my alter ego. I would go on stage and, and I'd be a lot more open about some stuff. And, uh, but I also remember being scared when I first started, because I was talking always about being a stoner and all these stoner jokes. And it was 2015. So weed wasn't legal yet. I had young kids. I was worried that like, if I posted my videos, someone was going to call CAS and be like, this guy's smoking weed and he has kids. And so I, whereas now, I mean, fuck it's legal. So no one gives a shit anymore. But, um, yeah, I remember that. And and then you see other people and the shit they talk about on stage. And I'm like, okay, there's nobody in the back of the room like writing all this down, making a report on you. And and that's how I felt at the beginning. But then I'd see someone else talk about doing shrooms and going to the fair or, or something, another level up from weed. And I'm like, this guy doesn't give a shit. Maybe he doesn't have kids, but I don't know. Also, how are you supposed to tell if it's, I mean, they could just be saying it. Exactly. I mean, like, it could all be fabricated. Just make shit up because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It could just be something they're doing on stage for the joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's weird. When I started stand-up, I felt like everybody knew everything about my life and like you're so self-conscious i guess when you first start trying to to go and do this thing which is kind of vulnerable is standing on stage and trying to get approval from a group of strangers you know so i guess i always felt like people could see everything about my life and they knew everything all about me and they could tell if i was telling the truth or just making something up and then you see enough comedy and you're like okay none of that's true <laughs> that's just my anxiety but like, that- I, I definitely started with with fictional comedy at first and i kind of slowly gravitated to more like diving into like, you know, storytelling about stuff that's happened in my life. But my first, like probably 10 sets, everything about it was just completely made up. Like none of it was true. <laughs> really? I always found that hard. I, I toyed with that and may have done it once or twice, but I always felt like I didn't like lying to the audience. I always, that was part of what I liked about doing comedy was just saying shit that's, you know, on my mind and, and real stuff that happened to me and stuff. I mean, I wasn't lying. Like I have a joke, for example, like one of the jokes was cause I, I was having like, weird numbness in my like left arm and my legs so, like that was true but i had like a story about going to the doctor and like th- that's part of it was all fake or even like rating a bit yeah yeah or even like the the joke that a lot of people have heard like where i talk about having this wet dream with angela langeberg like literally never never had like i liked murder she wrote i watched it as a kid from there i made this completely made up wet dream story. yeah yeah so like that's the thing is i just you know, so I'm not like trying to lie to the customer. Well, but I didn't he, mean lying in like a negative <laughs> sense either. There's people who could do a whole set that's all bullshit and it might yeah. crush and make everybody. I'm not trying to take away from that. It's just not something that I uh, whenever I do stage time, I always really enjoy that. You know what I feel like is me connecting with the audience by revealing truths about my life or the way that I think about shit, you know? Well, I know that JF definitely uh, seemed to have a pretty good detailed visit with the doctor recently too with that he's uh has a pretty funny joke about hey jeff oh well i that's that's the weird part about comedy for me i don't know you're you're touching on that oliver but um i don't know about you but i'm like a pretty private person in my real life with some things i am yeah 
with some things and then on stage like i have like a six minutes about a colonoscopy that i had like i have never told my friends or family that i had a colonoscopy either but uh, i'll tell strangers yeah i'll tell strangers six minutes (laughs) it is kind of camera feed on stage he's got the whole recording recording and the whole thing oh that's amazing um it is easier though right to reveal shit that you might be ashamed or a little shy about or whatever to strangers than it is to like, if your mom's sitting in the front row or something, at least for me, that's what I've always found when people I know and really respect their opinions are in the audience, then it's, it makes me much more nervous because I'm like, Oh, well this motherfucker knows me and, and they're going to remember if I was shitty or not. Whereas a stranger is going to forget you pretty much after the show, unless you were amazing, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. But there's like something, I, um, I watched uh, the Patrice O'Neill documentary last night. Have you oh, ever nice. Killing is easy. It's a new documentary, and his whole philosophy about being the truth and like he was apparently like the same on stage, off stage, and on stage, and like just being completely honest and way too honest. Like Jim Norton says, like he shot himself in the foot so many times because he was just yeah. couldn't couldn't hold back. He couldn't like toe the line, and you know, you just you know, and um, I think there's something so beautiful about that. Like people can who can be completely themselves on stage, and it's you at one point you realize like you're you think oh this is my persona on stage but maybe that persona is your true self and your persona is like the, your society self is your actual persona that you've been yeah yeah that's this so oh yeah that's so interesting yeah yeah, yeah it's a good way to look at it actually i mean i don't know where it falls I'd, I'd say it's different for every person too but i do think it's really cool when there's somebody who is like the same on and off stage uh, I mean, I'm sure there's slight differences, but people like Bill Burr, I think that he's pretty close to who he is on stage. And, and you know, there's probably a million other examples, but it's also uh, nice. Some people that sort of have like characters that they slip into on stage. Like that's what I love about comedy too, is there's so many different ways to do it. And there's no like wrong way other than the way that doesn't get laughs. But as far as like your form, whether you want to be a prop comic or a musical comic or a straight you know, just um, observational comic like Seinfeld style or whatever the fuck your thing is. Uh, as long as you get people laughing, then you're not doing it wrong. Like, at least as far as I'm concerned. I know because you can have like a hundred people in a room and have a variety of comics that are like the best comics. And like, you know, each each act will go completely different. So it's like, it's so much of its audience base. So it's not even like, well, this person is or isn't funny. Like That's a lot of people true, yeah. love Burt Kreischer and a lot of people love Chris Delia and a lot of people love, and, and some people don't, you know, like I'm not a huge Chris Delia guy. Obviously he's pretty popular. I don't particularly like Gabriel, uh, you know, fluffy, um, you know, but obviously he's pretty, he's doing something right. Cause he's pretty famous. So, you know, it's not, it's so, it's so like subjective. It's not even to say that's correct or not, you know, just like music. Well, I mean, with like Chris D'Elia, you could have opinions about him personally too. And him. True. Yeah, true. Underage no, it's not a good time to be a fan of Chris D'Elia right now. Yeah. Just... But I, I saw something on Facebook. It was like uh, him doing shows again or whatever. I don't remember a few months ago and like, whatever, you know, if he's, he's allowed, I guess, but it seems weird to me that people would want to go see his shows after finding out that kind of shit. Because uh, his seemed kind of con- pretty conclusive that he had been like grooming underage chicks and and being like super creep basically. Yeah. So yes. I don't know how you bounce back from that, but people seem to keep doing it. Like Brian Callen's performing again too, and he had a big scandal where some chick was accusing him of rape like twenty years ago and stuff like that. So I don't know. I mean, I guess you don't really know what really happened until it goes to court and shit like that. But it's crazy. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. It makes me wonder, like, how much other sort of, like, dark shit 
has gone down in the comedy community at large because it seems to be, you know, somewhat prevalent. Uh, there's enough comics that have been kind of getting in shit for that kind of stuff. And I can understand how the atmosphere would be conducive to that kind of behavior and that it's usually at night and there's alcohol involved and there's a, a lot of hierarchy in comedy and people trying to, you know, I don't know. And then there's a lot of damaged people to begin with who get into comedy who are very frail and, and maybe emotionally unstable in the first place. So, um, yeah, like Bill Cosby. Geez, there's so many. <laughs> it's I mean, the way you say, it, yeah, it is a recipe for disaster. Like, yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. People in a bar at night, alcohol involved, drugs and everything and the whole system. Yeah, it's well, just... and, and if we're going back decades a very um, unbalanced equation when it came to like women in comedy and and to a degree, like people of color and, and uh, different sexualities. And luckily that's all opening up a lot more nowadays, but I can only imagine like the, the heyday of like the eighties or something like that. You know, if you were a female comic, you probably instantly just had to work harder to get people's respect and, um, or whatever the case may be. I'm just, I'm glad to see that kind of shit changing for sure. Not yeah. to mention copious amounts of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's exactly. It's like the rock and roll lifestyle, especially back in the day too. I'm sure that it was, uh, a lot of drugs, not just alcohol, but like hard shit, you know? Yeah. Well, plus there's that fine line between like the movie industry and the, and the, con like if you get big enough, you know, a lot of those guys are still out there partying with, uh, you know, like movie stars and musicians. So like you're, you're still kind of mixing all those worlds. Well, some of them became movie stars, right? Like people like Eddie Murphy and, um, many other people like Robin Williams and, you know, comics that became amazing actors too, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like I remember watching the Richard Pryor roast and you see him doing a bump like right before he goes. Oh, yeah. But yeah, there was some, really didn't he fucking burn himself with uh, cooking math or something like that? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's some story that he he actually tells on stage when he's doing a comedy bit and he talks about how he I don't know, maybe it wasn't meth, maybe it was crack or something like that, but he was cooking some sort of home homebrew drugs and uh it like exploded and like lit his hair on fire and burned him and shit like that and and he put it into his act hey, man that's a good <laughs> man <laughs> you, do you ever find yourself like doing shit now that like i'll say yes to things now that i'm like ah i don't want to do it but i might get a good bit out of this <laughs> yeah 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 weird situations and scenarios for sure yeah yeah i gotta i gotta figure out a good way to make a bit of my uh my near-death experience in puna canna because you know, I mean, there's so much there. I just don't know how to make it funny yet because it was the most terrifying experience of my life. But I'm this sure sounds, eventually. This sounds I'll, like a story you now have to uh, sort of explain a bit further. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't mind saying I, I don't know how to make it funny yet. But um, no, no, there's, no, there's, there's this dance club. There's a dance club in Puna Cana called Imagine, and it's this like sweet underground cavern like you go into this giant like rock building and then they just basically dug into it and underneath you're like literally like in um in a big cave and they've turned into a dance club it was pretty it was pretty sweet you know That's so cool, the, yeah. the, the bus picks you up from from the resort and you know it's like a flat fee you pay go there dance the whole night you know bottle service um and so then they pick you up at like 2 or 3 a.m or something like that and they bring you back but uh, one of, uh, one of the guys that I was with, um, that was there, you know, he just kind of like befriended some, some people that were, uh, they're, they're from Chicago. They had an Airbnb that they were renting for like a month. Um, so they were not on a resort. They just went there cause they were like off, on, you know, they're, they're near the water and they had this like nice villa and it seemed nice. Cause I mean, it was, it was a, like a nice high end place. Like it was gated and everything. Nice. But the problem is that now it's like four in the morning and uh, you know, we, we did something that we should never do, which was get into a Jeep with this guy. 
driving and he was he was hammered. I mean, he was more than shit faced, but like I mean, he was obviously doing drugs too. And anyway, it was it was it was a fun night up until the moment where we would just were like, Yeah, okay, well, we don't want to split up. Well, I guess we're going to this guy's place for like an after party. Uh just to give you an example, we get in this Jeep. The first thing the guy does is pull out a machete and just scares the shit out of us. He's just like, <laughs> ah, you know, we're like, what the fuck, right? Um, so, but like, this is one of those things where like he's driving, drops his phone on the ground and he's just like, Oh, where did my phone go? You know? And you're just like, look at the road. And then like, he would swerve and like go up on the curb. And then like, he would start yelling with his girlfriend and we're just like, pay attention. Like he almost like hit cars and it was just like, he was driving this rental. So he was just booking it. He just didn't give a shit about the vehicle going so fast over speed bumps. Um, the morning after driving back, like he almost hit guys on motorcycles. Like it was just the most terrifying drive of my life you know and like literally like it was one of those yeah, moments this guy sounds like out. an asshole we just all got out t- kissed the ground like I, like we actually thought we we're gonna die we we're like i've never been in a car in my life that just i actually thought was was gonna crash at like 100 fucking miles an hour like it was just crazy how fast it was going and uh you know i mean the reason that we were in there is because we just want to make sure we all didn't separate we you know plus we missed the bus and it was like oh whatever let's just go and, and you know yolo but in hindsight it was a horrible idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah yolo no yeah yeah that's fucking crazy even him pulling out a machete i would already be like okay this was a bad decision <laughs> like before he even hits the gas pedal <laughs> oh man that is a crazy story but going back to what jf was saying about um you know approaching weird situations that they might be a good comedy bit i i think that's just a good way to approach life to try to have a healthy mindset in general that like Uh, I read in Pete Holmes book, him talking about this, and it was something I had done many times in my life. So it was cool to read someone else talking about that uh, in that you kind of just pretend like every day of your life is like an episode on like a TV show that's about you, you know, which sounds a little narcissistic and ego, but um, you know, because then it doesn't have to be good or bad. It's just like, what's going to happen to JF in this episode, you know, and you just kind of roll with it a little more. Well, that's the thing is, so I would like comedy's changed my mindset about negative experiences, right? Yeah. Like, you can have a negative experience now, but at least I put a twist on it. I'm like, well, you know, this might be a bit. So it's completely changed my mindset about it. It's the same thing like this winter. Well, I've been doing kiteboarding for a number of years now, but I got back into it more this winter. And for kiteboarding, so basically you have a giant kite, you go on like a Britannia and it's during the winter on the ice with the snowboard and all that. Oh, weird. And you need to have like, really strong wind and it's usually really cold days so in the winter when it's cold and windy even if i'm not kiteboarding i'm still happy because i'm like oh this is great kiteboarding weather but that changed like my mindset about winter like i don't see oh, interesting at all anymore right like usually if i'd be like oh this is cold and windy is like Ugh, miserable but now i'm actually happy about those days yeah, I actually know a couple of buddies who are super into snowboarding and it's that's how I've always felt. It's like it's shitty and cold outside and I'm like, oh man, I, I don't even want to go out there. And they're like, hey, let's go build a jump. And they're like super stoked to to have that weather. So it's all about your perspective, really. Yeah. yeah. But you well, can't get to make time, you know, like, I mean, you have a hobby. I mean, that makes it worth it. If you just yeah have to just suck up winter and shovel snow and deal with, you know, the crappy stuff, then there's no fun out of it. But there's a lot of good things you can do as long as you just make make time for it, you know? Well, and and dressing properly is something that like if you're lazy about how you approach winter, you pay for it. Like when I go out now, even just to walk the dogs on a cold day or whatever, I put like double layered socks, throw the long johns on because it makes such a huge difference. Just layers. And uh, and then you're like, man, it's not that bad. My cheeks are a little cold, but I could go for like a nice walk now, you know, and I feel like when I was younger, I was always just like 
lazy, leaving things to last minute, going out with like really underprepared clothing wise, and then bitching at the winter for being winter, you know? <laughs> Although there's a good solution now to the, to the cheeks because everyone's wearing fucking masks. True. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also something that I've said, I'm, I'm grateful for about masks is that I haven't been fucking sick since pre pandemic. Like at all. I know. Isn't it amazing? It's crazy. Yeah. 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 Usually because I have two young kids and like they would bring home so many coals and whatnot. And like we would be always sick. But now this year, like knock on wood, but like, are they in virtual school? No, they're in school school. So oh, okay. uh, well, for January for this lockdown, they were, you know, I was homeschooling one of them. But um, yeah, because mine have been in my older two have been in virtual school since uh, I guess whenever they first decided that. And uh, just because it worked well for us, their grades are as good, if not better. And then they're not going to school and mingling with other kids, possibly spreading germs around and shit. So, yeah, um, yeah I haven't minded that really, to be honest. It's nice not to have to, you know, drive out to the school in the morning on a snowy day and scrape the car off and shit. It's just, you know, I will say, actually, uh, I'm sort I sort of miss uh, January's virtual schooling because I was helping my son on, for virtual schooling and all that. And then we would take like he would have breaks and we would like take breaks together. And I was like his recess buddy, you know? Oh, like, nice. You know? That's adorable. <laughs> yeah. So we have like 20 minutes. Like, all right, let's go build a fort outside or something or let's go play chess or whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. So now I'm like, yeah, oh. meanwhile, I have my buddy Tyler over and we're just like drinking beer at three in the afternoon jamming. <laughs> Yeah, that's good too. That sounds that's, like a good time. That's your recess buddy, Tyler. Yeah, exactly. Hashtag no kids. Yeah. That's in high school though. You're smoking weed under the bleachers. I'm like doing super innocent things. Yeah. See, my high school though, we didn't have bleachers. We just had like a pit because there's this huge forest next to the school. Okay. So there's no bleachers anywhere. So we just like got right off school property and just went deep into the woods. And there's like this little like area that like people put logs and everything. And, and uh, you know, it was... So that's funny when we had uh the stoner group at my school it was always in the path which was like this path that was just across the street across school property that it was literally like one of those little paths you find between like uh you know a cul-de-sac or someplace where there's residential houses and then there's a little path that leads to maybe a slightly busier street it's that little path so there's backyards on either side of it and i'm sure those people hated the kids that went there every day and puffed yeah. the huge reefer smoke clouds you know but um, we moved there because I remember being in grade nine or 10 and there was a dumpster much closer to school property, sort of near the smoking section, just a little bit away from that. And the principal at the time hired somebody who, or I don't know if he paid them, but he got in cahoots with someone that lived in the apartment complex and had them filming us, uh, which wow. the kids then went and like got on the news, if I remember correctly, for like, hey, our, you know, our fucking school is filming us without our permission with like civilians from this residential place and i think they i don't know if they got in big trouble but they definitely stopped doing it and uh we moved to the path just to be safe but man what a weird memory <laughs> i just totally that all came flooding back to me right now i know isn't it so weird we actually had a narc i remember like in the actual like you know somebody who's in hindsight he was probably like maybe 20 and we were all like you know 15 16 whatever but he looked young and he was like this paid narc to be around people smoking weed and like busting people it was like what that's a so weird, weird like imagine being 20 and that's your job like yeah going oh back to high school and like being an dude i did um i did secret shopper shit for i don't know a month yeah. or something where you pretend that you're you're shopping and you're actually spying on people and trying to catch shoplifters oh it's yeah the weirdest first of all it's really boring because you're just like fake shopping for eight hours or whatever and it's it gets old real quick but yeah you just feel like kind of a dick and not to say shoplifting is right or anything but it's a weird thing to be getting paid to do for sure 
Well, they had those people that would get paid. They were underage and they would go get paid to go ask for cigarettes in convenience stores. Oh, and, shit. But then what they would do is they would go, they would take you to different towns so that, you know, they, people didn't know you and all that. But oh, yeah. you feel like you're, yeah, you feel like a narc as you are. Basically. That's still a weird job. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying it's not a good thing. I suppose it, it catches it's people. Good it's probably pays well if you're 16 whatever and you look like 20 you know well that, that's an interesting thing to ask you guys then what's the the weirdest or worst job that you guys have ever had oh that's a long list for weirdest job uh, well yeah whatever just pick one that you think would be fun to talk about now you know some i worked at a cheese factory with another scott brown so there were two <laughs> scott browns making cheese it was a that's hilarious. Second, second job. Yeah. What, like St. Albert's or whatever? In the Poutine? No, no. This was out in the Huron County. Um, do you know where like Owen Sound, Concarden area is? Like the vaguely. Okay. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, like there's the Bruce Power Plant, which is like it's this massive nuclear power plant that um, does like a, a huge amount of Ontario. So it's in that general area on, on Lake Huron. And it's a little, uh, it's a little place called Pine River. It's like an independent kind of like a lot of it was like manual labor as opposed to if you go to craft, you're gonna get like a lot more machines being done. So um, people always ask me like, oh yeah, do you, like, do you guys make cheese curds? I'm gonna go ahead and say this: all cheese that you buy, cheese curds happens in the process. So all cheese was cheese curds at some point. Like it's oh, really? like how they separate the whey and it curdles. And what we would do is there's this like thing that would kind of like go through this gigantic like 100 foot bathtub type of thing and it would separate the cheese as it would curdle from the whey and the whey would go off and get put in tanks and then go off to get make butter and, and whatnot so then what would happen is we would then use these big rakes so imagine like this like super long bathtub and one guy's on one side one guy's on the other and like from the middle we're both like, names scott like, brown we're part we're parting <laughs> the cheese like like this and it's like and then it just kind of like starts to mesh into each other and then you let it like all the weight settle and it turns into this big blob um and then we'd use these like slicers and we would be uh cutting the cheese of course which is a non-stop pun right um, <laughs> um someone like the manager would walk in and be like hey who cut the cheese like you know, oh my god uh, for the 400th day in yeah, a row yeah um and uh, <laughs> i couldn't shit for weeks it's way too much free cheese like it was bad you know like you how are you guys today you feeling gouda <laughs> you know, like all the cheese puns, you could go all day with that shit. Well, actually, the um, we had a Christmas party. They had a they had like a contest for who can come up with the cheesiest joke that I won. Um, oh, really? There was this old guy that had been there for like you know like forever and a day. His name was Lloyd, and he just like never did anything. He was like really knackered and just like he just feeble. Um, but I think it was just like this like courtesy to keep him on, even though like his productivity was like, you know, he just had like that job that like anybody could do, but they're just like, yeah, we're just gonna, you know, keep him on for, you know, loyalty's sake, which is a nice thing when you consider how most factories work. So it was like an ongoing joke. It was like, Hey, you know, Lloyd, nice of you to show up. You're going to start working anytime soon. So I had a joke, which was, uh, what do you call it when Lloyd shows up to work loitering? Apparently, and I, and I I won the joke contest. That's how that's how. It has good nothing to do with cheese. Yeah, it has nothing to do. I know. With <laughs> Other than it being a cheesy joke. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a joke about cheese. It was just a cheesy joke. Yeah. Well, and he works at the cheese factory, so technically it's sort of about cheese, I guess. But I thought you were going to give us a really good cheese joke there. Uh no, no, no. I uh, I I kind of like felt it was just overdone. So I was kind of like I was just sick of cheese and cheese jokes by the time I was done there. You know. Yeah. 
That's uh, I was not expecting you to say that you worked at a cheese factory with another Scott Brown. That's definitely a great story. <laughs> did, it, did it pay well? Did you make a lot of cheddar? No, I'm um, oh. <laughs> I made uh, I made like a dollar above minimum wage, I think, at the time. So like whatever, like eight bucks. Oh, it would be amazing if your manager's name was Bree. <laughs> anyway, no, actually, that, so what about you, JF? Are you had a weird job or? Well, actually, speaking of uh, bad paying jobs, uh, my first job um, was, um, okay, this is actually going to be weird how it started, but I was probably like maybe 12, so I was underage, right? Last day of school, our bus driver uh, turns around and he's like, who wants to make some money this summer <laughs> to a bunch of kids, you know? That's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Super creepy. You know, this yeah. is like... 90 or late 90s uh, early 90s i guess so you know whatever people didn't really care about that stuff but we were like yeah sure so our parents drop us off he had a, a strawberry farm so we were gonna pick strawberries for him so our, you know parents was like okay he's a trustworthy guy you know our bus driver so we show up <laughs> there a bunch of kids and he's paying us it was four dollars per for like a big crate so uh minimum wage back when I was that age was like less it was like 425 maybe and so we were getting paid less than four dollars an hour because it would take like us like an hour and a half to fill all these things but we were such shitty kids that some of the kids realized that they could put like hay and rocks at the bottom of oh the things and then put strawberries <laughs> on top <laughs> so you know the the, the quick in the process i am in yes you're really productive and uh <laughs> i mean in the end is like i'm i'm trying That's to make amazing. a bit of this but because this guy like you don't don't feel bad for this guy because he, he's basically hiring like underage kids to do slave labor for him you know so we we're just shitty kids we yeah were, fuck this guy yeah yeah fuck this guy but um yeah i thought it was a uh, well that's that's why all the mexicans come up for the summers and do it now is because i guess all the parents stop letting their kids do it because like literally like they'll have these contracts they'll they'll bring tons of mexicans up from mexico from a period of you know to come up and pick stuff because you know people always complain about all oh, these immigrants are taking their jobs yet nobody wants to do that shit so they literally yeah, yeah. Have to, bring them up <laughs> yeah we were literally taking people's jobs back then I felt <laughs> <real old. laughs> well at least you didn't get murdered by the bus driver was that at least you didn't get murdered by the bus driver so well it's yeah. funny though we talk we talk about you know the bus driver's trustworthy it's like well if you trust this person with a busload of kids to not kill them i mean why why would it's true yeah yes yeah but it's true that the bus drivers in general get like they shouldn't because there's such a variety of people that do that job. But I find whenever there's one in like a movie or something, it's usually some like overweight kind of gross dude for the most part. Yeah. The, the stereotypical bus driver. It's always, you like, can say Chris Farley. We get it. <laughs> well, that's sort of who I was thinking at one point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, like a bus driver turning around and asking kids like, Hey, you want to make some money? Like in a, in a big city that wouldn't fly probably. That's the schedule. Yeah. yeah. him paying them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Not a very good pitch. It's fun to think back on old jobs like that, though. Um, the one job that I feel like should have sucked, but I liked a lot was I worked at a place that was fast food, which I mean, maybe some people enjoy that. But for the most part, I think it's pretty low on like the job ladder of things you want to do with your life. Right. Um, but I was working in the Saint Laurent food court at this really small place that wasn't part of any chain. It was just called hot dog. <laughs> like that was the name of the place just hot dog. Um, but it ended up being a sweet job because there was only ever a couple of people working there. And I was always paired with someone who turned out to be really cool. 
And at one point my buddy started working there. So we would just like put up the back in five minutes sign and go get high in the stairwell. And, and then we'd come back and make all this food for yourself. Cause we were allowed to make a reasonable amount of food, you know? So that was one of those jobs that should have sucked, but I ended up really enjoying. I don't know where oh, I was going with that particularly, but how old were you? Cause that sounds like the best job when you're like, you know, 16. I, I was 16. Yeah. It was like my yeah. first, uh, not my first job, but my first job where I started clocking a lot of hours and like, putting in a decent amount of time after school, I'd go and work until close or whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, you're amongst your peers, right? Like you're amongst people that are cool that you're like, yeah, this is like my, my buddy worked at A and W and people would always go and he would give us like free fries in the back. You know, he was a, cool I had a, a deal with the guy from Burger King. I used to work at Rogers video um, when there was still video stores for a couple of years. And uh, one way you could use sort of currency from there was people's late charges. So like, if someone had like $50 of late charges, we as Rogers would usually say like, I'm sorry, but we can't let you rent anything until you like, uh, you know, make a dent in this and make some sort of payment to show that you're, you're going to try to pay it off. Um, but I didn't really care. I would just like erase people's late charges and be like, I'll get rid of that $50 late charge. If you buy me like a pack of smokes for 12 bucks. <laughs> and I'm talking to like strangers too, like complete strangers. And they would be happy. Cause they'd be like, eh, small price to play <laughs> to pay rather. Yeah. Um, but the Burger King guy, yeah, he would give me a chicken Caesar salad and I would give him a couple free rentals and it was, it was a pretty good job. <laughs> I guess I abused all my jobs, but <laughs> I mean, who didn't at that age though? Yeah. I mean, like, why, when you're 16, you don't give a shit or whatever. Like Rogers, know. I was like, I think 18 to 20, somewhere around there. Yeah. Still pretty young and dumb. Imagine actually imagine paying off all your late fees at Blockbuster, like the day before it shuts down. You're like, oh, <laughs> I think people had wind that, that the closures were coming. So I don't know if that ever would have happened, but uh, it would be funny if it actually did. I don't know. Maybe it did happen somewhere. I bet there's an entire, there's still a whole, like a whole generation now of kids that like are going to be baffled by the idea that Netflix used to be that you would get a, like a disc sent in the mail to your house. And when you're done, you mailed it back. Like that was even like a thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. I did that a few times. They had those kiosks, right? Where you would, uh, yeah, little red box or something. Yeah. Or red box. Well, no, I'm saying, but like, that's, yeah. that's red box. I'm talking oh, about yeah. actual Netflix. Like Netflix used to just literally have it done through mail. Oh, it's crazy. I never did that. I did do that once or twice. I remember closing the little envelope that was the size of the CD or whatever and putting it in. Yeah, man, that must have been like, I don't even know how long, 15 years ago or something. Well, I'm glad Netflix is what it is now because I can't even imagine doing that now. It seems like every year we become more and more spoiled with getting things immediately, which is probably not for the best, but... Yeah. But it's also better for the environment if you think about it. Like if it's just zeros and ones on a, on a wire instead of like having... Truck. Yeah, just the digital transfer same thing with like I, I you know i love vinyl and i think vinyl is like higher quality but when i think about it, like streaming music is much better for the environment than you know buying all the cds or vinyls and whatnot so there's a kid creeping behind you <laughs> <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> that's adorable although i i realize that uh it may be bad news for us jf on uh on march 5th because apparently that's when uh coming to america 2 comes out so <laughs> Nope. I'm not sure how many people oh, are going to be wanting to watch that, you know? Yeah, but then they'll watch it the next day or the day after that. Like, yeah, I'm, I know a lot of people that are excited to see. But that's a good segue back into your film, actually, because I wanted to know um, partially how you guys met and decided to work on this together. That was one thing I was curious about. Well, I, I was never really thought I'd be up for an orgy, but, uh, you know, it was. <laughs> but JF just has those eyes. Yeah, man, soft skin. You know, yeah. <laughs> 
I no, it, it was uh, Andrew. I think it was because the whole Andrew Wambolt's feature special, I think, was really what kind of sparked it. You guys just did a show together and kind of met that way? No. So, uh, yeah, Andrew Wambolt was featuring at Yucks for his first time, first feature at a Newtown showcase. And, and we both uh showed up with like multiple cameras and we actually recorded the audio from the board and i tried tried to like direct it as an actual like you know small special oh nice and um yeah so that was our first time working together and i think that's what i really want to do eventually with my sort of filmmaking careers like i want to start directing specials people's specials and and things like that wow, so that's um, so cool yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff. I was, I'm no joke. I was just thinking about that the other day. I don't have any of the experience you guys do with film, but I was just thinking the other day how that's like one of those jobs I could see myself working towards in five, 10 years, or maybe, you know, eventually, because that, that would be such a rad way of being involved in comedy. And this is for me again, um, but not having to do stand up all the time, you know, because I yeah. love comedy and I like doing stand up sometimes, but I don't think I'm ever going to be the guy that wants to be full-time really trying to grind like a lot of people i know who i have so much respect for um so yeah i i agree that would be a fucking badass thing to be making money doing and and just so many different comics you get to experience launching people's careers hopefully you'll have to go to another town though because this is our town kid <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't worry i'm not picking up a camera anytime soon well it was it was actually kind of cool when we were talking with jeremy hots about um you know he gave us a good insight when he did like his own production at uh was it center point i think yeah, center point theater. Yeah. Um, and just talking about you know and the cost of and you know really putting in perspective uh, at a certain level you know how much how much it could actually uh, you know how much can go into it and how much you could charge too. And I think right now is you know, there's so much going on. Like Ottawa's got a, a fantastic comedy scene. Um, and just even since kind of bringing this up, like a lot of comics have already kind of. Um, sorry, can you guys hear me okay, by the way? Yep. Yeah. Um, a lot of comics have actually already approached me, um, been like, yeah, it'd be so sweet, like if you guys could do that, just because you know, they realize like they want to be able to expand their portfolio and they want to have like good stuff to send off to get booking. So I think that it, it'll, now that things are reopening up, um, you know, this has definitely been kind of a good, a good eye opener for the, not just the Ottawa community, but the, the kind of the surrounding areas too, is that as we've been, you know, the films kind of got, got that exposure. So it's definitely, it's, it's a good time. Cause I think com there's, there's going to be a big boom in comedy. Like there's, there's a lot of people obviously that want to do comedy, but I think a lot of people don't know, like they don't know how to do comedy. Like they know how to get on stage and do jokes, but like they don't know how to like market. They don't know how to make the, uh, the world know about their presence as much. Yeah. So I think that's like a really important thing to do right now is make sure that, you know, these people uh, actually have the good exposure, you know, and, and have the ability to, you know, get a bigger audience and use social media and live streaming and stuff like that, to, uh, you know, to their, to their advantage. So I think it's definitely it's a, an exciting time for, for what we're going to be seeing in Ottawa for the next few years. Well, it'll be nice when you can record specials with full capacity rooms again, too, just for the laughter effect, you know? Oh, I, exactly. It does yeah. make a big difference. I feel. Yeah, for sure. You can't uh, film a special with 25 people in the audience. I mean, you could, and, and people would get that it's during the pandemic. It's not necessarily wrong. And if you're killing it, you might be still getting boisterous enough laughter from the people that are there that it would still sound awesome. I don't know, but a packed room always just sounds it's a nice sound i don't know yeah like no. that, that audience of the liveliness of all these people connecting for this this moment you know i don't know if you guys ever seen uh maria bamford has a special on netflix where she starts with one person it's like her husband and then she goes and she does stand up in front of like two people on a bench and then it goes progressively bigger and bigger and by the end she's like doing a theater show yeah i think i did but see this yeah and then some you know at some point she's just like in a little 
coffee shop or a bookstore or something like that doing and that's she's filming her comedy special that way i thought it was fucking brilliant yeah no now that you're uh, going through that i totally remember right. watching that yeah. that was pretty rad yeah i think that there's a lot of ways to though, film too that. hard to plan it out yeah I mean, you take a, a pavilion. I mean, there's there's quite a few even around Ottawa, but you take a good pavilion that's out at a park, you know, and you have it so it's promoted. People come out. So you're you're actually out there. You're doing it outside. So you can still have like some recorders set up um, in the crowd to, to record the audio, you know, and then have a, a switchboard and everything to record your set. So that way you can still get a bigger crowd because, you know, let's say it's 50 people max indoors, but it's 200 outdoors. You can then you know, actually get 200 people to, to attend your show. So I think that you're probably going to have to start seeing a lot more outdoor comedy specials. Um, and one of, one of the guys that's in the documentary, uh, Ben Bankus, like he really, uh, really kind of set the tone for that. Like he had the first show in North America on, I think it was June 4th or June 5th in Toronto. Um, and so from there, like tons of other outdoor shows kind of started to happen and he was getting like 500 to a thousand people at some times coming out to the park and Crazy. It was it was a big thing, but a lot of it was because of like protesting versus like comedy shows. So that was where, you know, there was a fine line between people being uh, getting broken up by the police because like there was cops there and tickets being given out and stuff. So it was a very it was a very interesting ordeal, but it really kind of helped to shine light on like how we can take comedy to a different level and find uh, again lots of like alternative methods. And I think now that. Um, I mean, we've obviously, I think, experienced ones that work and don't work like drive-ins, you know, like people honk their horns as laughing, like, fuck that, like, <laughs> you know, but like, so everyone's yeah, just true. trying literally everything they can to make a comedy show work. Matt, Matt Santos did a, a great job doing some of those ones at some breweries using like the part where the truck backs up to like the loading dock. So the loading dock doors open, people are there, that's the stage. And then the entire parking lot is filled with chairs. You know, so it's just a lot of good creativity, finding ways to to make comedy happen, which is which is really inspiring when you think about it. Yeah, it's nice that they're trying to find a way to still do it in all this craziness. You know, people might have just given up, but I don't really think stand up people are that kind of people. <laughs> I think we no, they always are really not striving to uh, to find a way, you know. No, and that's uh, one of the other things about the documentary that we touched on is like a lot of people in the documentary like Pierre Bro, for example he's been around for like you know 30 40 years I think so he's seen comedy go through different phases and he's like I'm not I'm not afraid of this because you know this is just a phase and we've always survived you know from the court jesters and the back in the day and yeah yeah it's, know, it's never gonna go away but it might change and one of the things that uh, I'm actually sort of excited about is the ability to stream live comedy to people that might not want to go to comedy clubs you know yeah so, um i watched uh like chris de stefano a new york comic for example like i, I paid for his a stream and it was him in a theater so there's a, still a live audience you still hear the real laughter it's not a zoom show it's not like a weird zoom show where you yeah, just yeah. a couple of people laugh like you're there virtually yeah, it's like you're there. It's like you're watching a comedy special. Yeah, and that's cool. Camera angles on that, and that's something that I think we could do at at Yucks for people that you know might even during the pandemic, like people might not be comfortable going out to clubs yet, and uh, you know at least. Yeah, you know, and then there's also no fun. limit to capacity of like who can watch. Yeah. Right, you could have like a thousand people watching from their home. You can charge maybe not as much as you would for an in-person seat because that's a more visceral experience yeah, yeah. or whatever bucks or seven or something like that instead of 10 yeah people watch the part that. that i'm really nervous about is is the fact that comics 
are being paid less, you know? So how does that affect the quality of comedy? Like you take somebody yeah. who's, you know, supposed to be selling out 200 people, 500 people, a thousand people, whatever the venue. Well, if you consider how ticket sales and, and all that dictate how much they get paid. So now you take all these comics getting paid less and there's less stage time. Yeah. So now people are not necessarily as willing to want to go out, but there's obviously a lot of people who've got disposable money. And really what we need to do is find this way to get the message that, you know, it's, and this is, I think one of the worst things about what's happening now is like, people are complaining like, Oh, it costs this much money. Like, why does it cost this much? But then these burger joints, like keep popping up in like firehouse subs or now people are paying $20 to go get a meal. Like it's just ridiculous, but like it's weird. People are very selective. Like they'll complain about spending a couple more dollars on something because of inflation, but then they'll go out and they'll spend, you know, their $9 at Starbucks every day or whatever. So yeah, yeah. comedy though. <laughs> so people now because of streaming and the accessibility of stuff, people don't want to pay for it, which really sucks. But you have to realize like, if you don't, what happens if it goes away? So it's like, we need to help realize like you're just doing it to make sure that this thing that obviously everybody loves, like, if somebody doesn't like comedy, get fucked. Um, like the, you, you might like Brian Regan cause he's clean versus, you know, Anthony Jeselnik, but to not like any comedy makes no sense to me. But if that goes away, it's a huge part of our culture. That is as far as I'm concerned, a necessity. And we got to help make sure people realize like, Hey, $5 from a hundred people can go a long way when it comes to, you know, making sure that this individual comic is making a living. Because yeah. if they can't make a living, then A, they have to quit or they might have other mental health issues or, you know, substance abuse or whatever, which is which is really what we're seeing right now. You take people in Toronto have been, what, almost four months now without comedy? Four months with no income, no comedy. Yeah, that's and you take that kind of artistic person cooped up in an apartment in Toronto with nothing to do. You can't do the thing that's the most important thing to you, you know? And I don't think people realize, like, that's what's going on. But you know, Metallica can get on there and put a fucking stage together and do a show and people will still pay because it's Metallica, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird double standard, you know? Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, no, man, that's, it's brutal. And especially in a city like Toronto where there's that many more comics that all would have been competing for stage time. And now they're all just what we do. And they're in the hardest lockdowns there for most of the time too, compared to some of like our city, like Ottawa, we got more breaks where they would lift the lockdown, but you always hear Peel, York, and Toronto always like just, you know, getting the worst of it. Yeah. And if you consider too, like just uh, even internationally, I mean, the, the comedy festivals, you know, that go on just for laughs, Winnipeg, you know, I mean, Canada is, is really is a hot spot. I mean, like we're well known for our comedy and it's, and yeah. it's something that, you know, these festivals and, and how it brings, you know, the amateurs to, to a better starlight, you know, I mean, that that's all now going backwards a lot. So like, how long is it going to take for this new wave of comics to get their 15 minutes of fame again? Yeah. Right? And when you were saying, um, you know, if you don't like comedy, get fucked. I feel like very similar about people who say, I don't, yeah, I don't really like music or um, yeah, no, I don't really like animals. Those two get me and stop me dead in my tracks every time. I'm like what? Like, yeah, you don't have to like, you can be a dog person, a cat person, you can like lizards or something, but to just be like, I don't like animals. I find that very weird. And uh, music as well. Like there's so many different kinds. It just seems some sort of inhuman thing to just say like, I don't know, maybe that's just me, but well, what you're, weird, what right? you're describing is a sociopath. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like serial killer material. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, back to the film. I wanted to ask you, you guys are doing like a fundraiser thing, right? That ties into everything we were just talking about, about people that are struggling. So what's the plan there exactly to try to raise funds for comics? Um, so back when the pandemic first hit, there was, uh, well, as you recalled in the film, Derek Forgey. So yeah. he has his 10 minute talk show and he was doing this thing on his birthday, kind of like a 24 hour telethon type thing. And, you know, he was trying to raise a thousand bucks and he's really central in, in the comedy community as well. And he just kind of got involved uh, from kind of reaching out to the Canadian Association of Stamp Comics and then uh, Just for Laughs and Sirius XM and these people kind of caught wind and it turned into a pretty, a pretty big fundraiser and they raised about $33,000 and they then had comedians who were qualified. So like, for example, somebody who's like, that's their income, like they're, they're considered a professional comedian. They don't have like a day job uh, like we do. Right. So if they had no income and they were just getting just EI or whatever, then they can send in an application. And then they were doing like a lottery style, $500 grants that were giving out um, to comedians that applied. I think luckily everybody was able to at least get one. So now that we fast forward literally a year later with more of this bullshit been going on, obviously comedians need, need help again. Right. So we're trying to put to, kind of together basically a, a second wave, if you will. <laughs> um, so uh, we're just, we're just, we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, we're kind of doing the same thing. So Mark Breslin like really liked, really liked the film when I sent it to him and he was really stoked and, and loved the idea of the fundraiser. So Yuck Yucks has decided to get on board and really help as a sponsor. And so what we're doing is on Monday and Tuesday here in Ottawa on March 1st and 2nd, we're doing a, a film release at Yuck Yucks. All the ticket sales are going to actually be going to the fundraiser and we're going to be doing some raffles and door prizes as well to, to raise some extra money um, and kind of kickstart on March 1st. And then on the 5th, when the movie comes out, um, you know, we're really hoping that if we can get a lot of people viewing the movie, you know, it'll really help to kind of capture the story of what's going on and people will be more apt to want to, to donate money. And our, our goal is to reach about, about $50,000. So right on. And so can people, uh, like if we want to watch it on March 5th, that's going to be like, you pay to download and it goes towards the fundraiser. No, we, we had thought about that. Um, and we, we thought it would be, be better to just let people watch the movie and, and then, then kind of have a passive yeah. kind of ask at the end, you know? That's cool. Um, I mean, we contemplated that, but I, I just think that the, yeah, I don't know. I think we're just going to let it just be kind of like a live release and then kind of leave nice. it up to the viewers to decide what they want to do. So, so free on YouTube then. Yeah. So like, it'll be on, on the website is www.comedy19movie.com. Um, so you can get information on the movie, there, trailers, there. comedy 19, not COVID 19. Yes. yes. Comedy like 19. I, I erroneously stated at the beginning of this thing, <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, you got a link to the GoFundMe page, uh, go, the GoFundMe page is up, but it, um, will be activated on, on March 1st to start receiving donations. So nice. Well, and I should say that uh, when you're speaking about all this, people watching this episode, if they're watching it on the first day it came out, it will be March 1st. So, right. <laughs> um, so if you're watching this episode right now and this episode just came out today, then uh, come to the fundraiser. And I, I, we're performing there now. Is that confirmed yet? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so you'll be well, on. You'll be on March. Uh, be March first. Some comedy for the first time since uh, September. So 
we'll see how that goes. And uh, no, I'm looking forward to it, man. I think it's going to be a really, really good time. Yeah. I'm happy to yeah, see the I'm, final I'm, cut of the film too. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited as well too because uh, Glenn Foster, who was also one of those kind of Canadian comedians that when I was really young, I was watching on TV all the time, you know, back with Norm MacDonald and Mike MacDonald and Jeremy Hotz. And I didn't really really think of it he wasn't really on my radar when we we're kind of thinking of people to be in the film and it wasn't just until like a couple of weeks ago i was doing a zoom show uh and he was on it i'm like hey is that guy's the canadian guy you know um so uh we became facebook friends and chat a little bit because he shared the trailer and then i kind of asked him I was like hey like do you like do you want to come to the movie it'd be cool to to meet you and just be an honor to have you there and then um yeah decided to to have him as kind of a special guest to come on and, and do a bit of stand-up as well too because who knows when the last time was that he was doing comedy at Yuck Yuck. So I think that'd be kind of a nice treat as a bit of a tribute to, you know, the Canadian comedy industry. Was Is he going to be Monday, Tuesday or both or? Uh, yeah, he'll be on, he'll be on both nights. Oh, nice. All right, so, cool. Um, I wanted to ask you as far as, well, both of you guys really making this film, what were your biggest takeaways and things that you learned uh, both about filmmaking and just about comedy in general and the, the subject matter that you were approaching? I mean, just from a filmmaking perspective, just, I think Scott and I, like I bought a camera because of this, like, and we, like, we just went and pooled all our resources together and tried to make something. But then we realized, okay, we need like this audio equipment. We were going to need like these cameras. We're going to need the tripods. We're going to need all this stuff to make a film. But now we have the equipment to actually make a documentary. And that was pretty amazing just that we were able to do it, like not, no, we didn't get any funding. We were just self-funded this whole documentary ourselves and just the time that the comics were were giving us. Um, but also from a comedy perspective, it was really cool to see just how much comedy meant to people, I think. Oh, nice. And everybody had their own story, their own perspective on it, but everybody, comedy touched everybody's lives in certain ways. And, you know, it was really cool to see, yeah, how much it just meant to everybody, I think. That's a great and answer. But they miss it. <laughs> Well, and it's, it's kind of a, like, literally, if I were to say, like, the amount of money that it costs us to make this documentary would be, like, whatever it cost us and, and basically gas to drive to and from, but which really, because a lot of it, we didn't have to drive far because it's around Ottawa. So, um, like, I had a camera that is a, not, not a great camera, but it worked, you know, and, you know, we were filming stuff down in Yuck Yucks, realizing, like, man, like, these cameras just don't hold up because it's, like Howard's interview was so good, but our cameras really weren't that Focus. accustomed for the the low light, you know? So I went out and invested in like a really good expensive camera and lenses specifically. So that way, you know, we can film in yuck yucks again. If you look at footage that just would have been released, for example, like I just posted a new video on my YouTube of my set from the weekend. And it's like, it's just night and day difference in quality because, you know, of the camera. So it just kind of really helped to really ignite that, that passion. Um, and kind of like, for me, like I actually decided to start my, my company. Like when I was doing this, I was just kind of on the, on the edge about doing sales still. Cause I've been doing sales for a long time. Like I went to school for TV broadcasting. I was doing camera work for a while. Um, and then after I got into sales for almost a decade and just completely left the industry and this whole, you know, dream of going to Vancouver and getting into to TV and film, I just slowly fizzled and, you know, got into a serious relationship so when all that kind of came to an end, I was like, what am I going to do next? And so during the pandemic, I moved back to Ottawa, just felt like I needed a change. And it's just like, everything has just been like, just beautifully, almost, almost 
serendipitously in a, in a sense lining up and I've been searching for like what I, what I would say like my people or my tribe. And uh, I feel like I found it through this, you know, and, and it's been very humbling. Um, like the people that I've met uh, through this, you know, it's, and it's amazing how it was easy to approach everybody. You know, you send an email, Hey, oh, are you interested? Or, you know, I go up to Kyle Brownberg after seeing the show and he'd just be like, yeah, this would be great. You know? And it's just nice that all these people that are, are, you know, not just, comedians, but, you know, like friends now, you know, people that I, I never really would have thought I would have had this kind of network uh, at my disposal. And um, it's just, it's just been great to finally really like go, go almost all in, you know, I opened up a company, I'm really taking my comedy, my music to a point now where I was kind of afraid to do it before. And my, my happiness has just gone up like a thousand percent, you know, and, and everybody I've met in, in Ottawa has just been it's just been phenomenal, you know, and, and I feel like really at home because of this. And I'm really excited for, uh, to share it with everyone. That's awesome. Um, Kyle is a really nice dude too. I should say, uh, after you mentioned him, because he's one of the nicest people I've met doing this show. And I oh, actually, he's great. Yeah. I wanted to just plug cause in a couple of weeks, uh, this is March 1st, this one will be coming out. So on the 16th, I think we're recording for his podcast. So anyone wants to check that out i think it's going up on the 18th he does a podcast called best actress where uh they review the best actress winners from different years at the oscars and then they discuss like who they think should have won so i've been watching these five different movies and writing notes and like it, i'm super excited so i just wanted to uh to mention that and give kyle a shout out what, um, uh, which movies uh the year we did 86 so it's um it has aliens which is awesome because i didn't even know nice. sigourney weaver had been uh nominated yeah. Yo, she's the uh, shit in that movie. Yo, she's, yeah, that's such a good flick. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, the rest of them I had never heard of. One of them's called The Morning After, which is like um, Jane Fonda and uh, young Jeff Bridges, which uh, I watched that one. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to spoil all my my critiques about or, or my thoughts about it. But um, there's anyways, there's a few other ones, but I hadn't really heard of many of them. So it's been a really cool experience just you know, when you kind of force yourself to watch a movie that you otherwise might not have ever given the time of day because it's not your general interest category or whatever, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to the experience. That kind of reminds me of, um, like, my parents split up and I live with my dad and he wasn't really, uh, you know, we, we had our, our hardships at this age, partly because, you know, you know, he's like ex-military and like very like ironclad kind of businessman. And at that time I had black hair and I was in a punk band and, you know, I was still kind of being a little bit of a shithead because of the divorce. So we, we wanted to do like some father son stuff and went to see a movie. And I, I mean, at this point, I don't even remember what the last time it was that we had done something like that. So it was just kind of like a, Hey, let's go see a movie, you know? And it was kind of like got there and looked through like, what are we, we going to pick? Wasn't many options. And uh, so we went to see The Incredibles, but I picked it and like my dad didn't realize it was an animated movie. And like my dad just like never swears, right? Like he's just, again, he's a very clean cut kind of guy um, and, and his demeanor in a sense is always very professional. And I just remember this, so, like we're sitting in the theater and all the previews are, are animated Pixar movies. So my dad eventually, he's like, is this an animated movie? And I go, yeah, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I haven't heard him say fucking forever, you know? And I just thought, of, and then he ended, but he ended up loving the movie. And, it, and it was, he was like, wow, what a great movie. You know, well, I was going to say, yeah. Why was he against animated? Just because it was like childish or something. I don't know. It just, I guess like that's not his cup of tea. So the idea that he was now like, you know, randomly going out with his son for the first time, seeing an animated movie, it was just, anyway, I just remember that. But then he ended up loving the movie because it's so sweet. That's awesome. 
<laughs> oh man. Yeah. Pixar, uh, they do good stuff. Good family. Soul. You got to watch soul. So good. I have not seen that one yet. I know what it is. Um, the jazz the thing one right? with Jamie Foxx. It's very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause they did the other one that was about emotions, um, inside out or is that what it's called? No, I'm going to, I think I'm screwing up the title, but it's like yeah. a girl and it's all her emotions inside her brain. That's like the characters. Like one of them is jealousy. One of them is, or God, I'm not even going to try cause I'm going to butcher this, but, uh, I think I thought it was called inside out. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was supposed to be like amazing. Everyone I've talked to is like, Oh, you're going to cry at the end. It's brutal. So I just haven't gotten around to watching that one. I've seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was it rough? yeah, it was good. I mean, when you have kids, I think, I don't know about you, but I was, I'm much more emotional when I watch things that have like children involved. Like I watched this movie lion. I don't know if I talked about it on my podcast before, but, uh, have you ever seen, seen this movie? It's about this kid in India that gets lost on a train, ends up getting adopted and raised in Tasmania has like Nicole Kidman. Oh no, I've never even heard of that. Slumdog millionaire, but it, it's based on a true story. And then the climax is like, you know, he's trying to find his mother back and all that. And I cried like a baby at the end of this movie. I cried so much. And I actually had to go and like, I didn't wake up my son, but I had to go like sneak into his room and like give him a hug. I was like crying so much. But as a, yeah, since I've been a That's father. That's awesome like, though. Yeah. I just, I, I wish I could cry more often almost, but uh, I yeah, it does it. feel like this valve that gets turned on and kind of like, and you're like, oh, I didn't know I needed to do that, but. Yeah. Oh, it you know. felt so good. It's so cathartic. Like I'll watch sometimes like these veterans coming home videos and like, you know, surprising their kids and like just bawling and crying. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh man. I used, yeah. I used to be kind of like Chandler. And if you guys recall that episode of Friends where he's like, you know, oh yes, it was very sad when the artist stopped drawing the deer, you know? Um, but I seem, I seem to have like awoken something. Like I went, I went from this like really big shift of like hating who I was because I became this like ruthless borderline narcissistic businessman. And I just felt like I just, I just took the, the person that I was inside and like just murdered him. So I had to like rediscover who I was and everything. And I, but then like, I realized like after I've like reformed myself and, uh, now I just, I, I feel like so much more empathetic, which is awesome. But to a point, I was watching Breaking Bad the other day, and like I haven't finished the series for some reason. Don't criticize me. So I was like rewatching it because I was like, I, I knew I watched the first three seasons, but I hadn't finished season three. Watched some of season four, so I'm like, fuck it, I'm out of TV shows. Started binging it. Hank just got shot. He's in the hospital, and his wife, like, you know, this is how you know a show d- deserves Emmys. The wife's in there, and she's like bitching at the DEA, like his boss is coming in because he's like he didn't have his gun. I'm fucking crying all of a sudden. I'm like, why am I so emotional right now? You know. But I'm like, damn, like, like, this is a good show. Like, no wonder everyone loves it. Like, the acting is impeccable. And I think that's also how you know, like, when when you take, like, what, I forget the name of the actress in The Shining, but it's like, she, she's so bad at acting. This is not believable. When you got a person who's, like, really good, that that's what you want to do is you want to feel everything they're feeling. And so, but now I kind of feel, like, nervous because I'm like, shit, if I'm, if I'm crying at a show about a teacher making math, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's the thing you got to just not care about crying or look at it as a bad thing and look at it as just like a natural part of life that everybody it's, it's a healthy thing to do realistically not all the time mind you if you're crying like non-stop from when you wake up that's a different story but this I think burrito part of it, was so delicious part of it for me uh, like i find i've always been a sensitive person but uh as i get older it, it intensifies because change is hard. And because, um, it's a reminder of your own mortality, the older you get, it's a lot easier to think about like, Oh, okay. 
like in 20, I was just thinking about that. I'm 35. And I think it's a weird age to be at because if you go back 15 years, you're 20 years old. And if you go forward 50 years, uh, 15 years, rather you're 50. And yeah. those are such massively different sort of parts of uh, the age spectrum and then what kind of a life and where you're going to be at physically. And um, I don't know, it's just weird. It's a weird conjuncture to be at. Is that a word conjuncture? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, anyways, that's where I'm at. I'm thinking that time when, when I get older, that adds to my emotional state for sure. Just because it seems like, I don't know, mortality is just one of those things for me that like you think about your parents or, Oh, they're getting kind of old or just, yeah. or your kids are growing up too fast. That's another thing too. For me, yeah. at least my kids are getting old and I'm like, Oh, how old are your kids now? Uh, my oldest is 12 and I have a 10 year old too. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, and my youngest is three and a half, uh, almost four, I should say. And, uh, having him around kind of reminds me of when they were that age. And then I just, I'm like, Oh my God, you're so big now. You're almost teenagers. But yeah, I've just gotten more sensitive the older I get, I think, because I don't know, it's just life, life is beautiful and you want to respect and, and recognize that more, I think. Yeah. And, and I hope there's a shift with like, I don't, our, I'm sure like our parents or grandparents, uh, era like men didn't cry you know it was like you know kind of like you know you had to be tough and stoic all the time but i think now i think men are more in touch with their emotions or at least it seems like societally is more acceptable to be more in touch with your emotions and cry and then talk about it and like i think it's great if we can actually shift towards that or if uh you know I, i'm hoping this is where society is going i don't know if it's just because i'm getting older and i can just like whatever i don't care well that's what i think it is it's partially society definitely like if we go back to like the 50s or something everybody would keep their they treated crying like masturbation like you don't do it in front of other yeah, people yeah. it's kind of a shameful thing you keep to yourself wait 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 what <laughs> no oh i've been doing it wrong the whole time <laughs> oh that's hilarious but uh, yeah, I guess this is like Bill Burr's stand up, but like, you know, men would just like bottle up their emotions and then they just have die of a heart attack at 50, all because they didn't want to admit they wanted to pet a puppy or something, you know, it's like. But I think it comes down to the individual level of just like not giving a fuck as much as you did when you were younger and you and you cared. People saw you crying like I don't that stuff doesn't bother me anymore. And it sounds like sort of the same for you where you're you're just owning that part of your your emotional, you know, soul or whatever you want to call it. Like, I, I'm I'm more proud of that than ashamed whereas when you're a teenager you're embarrassed if you're if you're weak or vulnerable it's a lot easier to feel like like you're nobody now or, or you suck or something but when you get older at least i find you, with some maturity you just start to respect it all as being part of the process and and you know being more in touch with you know your true thoughts and feelings which isn't a bad thing you know yeah yeah, yeah like we're kind of lucky in a sense that I mean, if i were to use like my grandpa for example um you know his his mom died of spanish flu and then, you know, he had to like, you know, take over and do a lot of those manly things on the farm and, and, you know, help with, you know, a lot of family duties. And, you know, he was in the air force and then, you know, the world war two happened and, you know, I mean like, so like, how does that shit just last with you? And then you raise the next generation. But then what happens is that like that, like, you know, some, somebody that would have been like our grandparents generation. And then the kids after that, then you take like our generation and then the shift happens so now there's like this huge divide in society between the last remnants of the generation who had like old school mentality versus now these new kids that are like, oh, you know, like, you know, you shouldn't use this word or you shouldn't, you know, like that safe space mentality. And it's not necessarily bad or good. It's just like these two last like remaining uh, 
relics, like, if you will, or opposite of, of the yeah. old school are like, and once they die, it's like, that'll, that'll all kind of go away. And then it'll, I mean, but who knows what the next kind of shift would be. So there's still all these people out there that are still going to be like, Oh, you know, you're queer for crying. Are they going to diminish you in some way for that? Or they're going to, they're going to look down negatively. It's like, Hey man, just because you guys went to war, it's like, yeah, we get that. But it doesn't mean that people now are, are soft because they have emotional intelligence, you know, and they respect people. <laughs> yeah. There is going to always be some people that are really, you know, simple-minded about that kind of stuff and, and always trying to be tough all the time. And, and I don't think that's going to go away completely, but same with racism and all that, all these things are still going to exist in some form, but it at least hopefully is going in the right direction where it's slowly getting diluted generation after generation. There's less people passing that shit on down to their kids and trying to like keep mm -hmm. that mentality going, you know, because enough people are waking up along the way and, and, and saying, no, fuck this. We've been doing it wrong and I'm okay with adjusting to this newer, better reality, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's all we can hope for. I don't know. Cause it's true with the polar opposites and the way people are on the right and the left extremes right now, it's bananas. Like I wish people could be a little bit more in the middle, trying to recognize that most things in life are somewhere in the middle. It's, you know, things aren't cut and dry most of the time. Yeah. Well, that's why comedy is so important too, because it brings, it brings us up together. I mean, some people do it better than others, but you know, you can take, you can take certain people. I mean, like Bill Burr is a good example. Um, you know, I mean, he's a little bit more ranty on it as well, too, where, I mean, obviously some, some people like Anthony Jeselnik's more, he just will just make a dead baby 9-11 joke. But, but people just need to still kind of have the balls to speak their mind and, and just kind of realize like, yeah, like I think comedians, a lot of times we are in the middle and we're able to hopefully bring the two sides together because, you know, obviously some, some comedians are going to be like really left one are going to be really right too. But that's still fewer and far between. And, and I, that's one of the things I really think is kind of beautiful is it's almost like nothing is, nothing is out of the realm to be able to make fun of. Right. And again, because every, every comic that I personally know so far seems to have a lot of their, their uh, drive or their influence um, and any reason for doing comedy come from some bad happening, some type of trauma, whether it being um, someone's, you know, somebody died or they had an abusive relationship or, you know, they had a very fucked up upbringing. And so they realize how fucked up the world is and they find this way uh, of an outlet and then they can make other people laugh. Like really what, what better way to, to make uh, you know, a flower out of fucking dirt. You know what I mean? Like, and people don't see it that way sometimes it's, it's dumb but it's like if everybody could see it from the perspective of a comedian i think the world would be a much happier place you know yeah there's some comedians perspectives that i probably wouldn't want to get in their mind for too long but True. it depends on the comic um i wanted to ask you guys about the documentary or, or i guess maybe this is more for scott but did making that documentary lead you to a point where you think that you would want to make another documentary in the future and also if you do want to make another documentary in the future, what would you love to be the the focal point and the topic that you would want to explore? Well, I, it's, I mean, the answer is yes. I mean, I, I've always kind of liked and been intrigued by uh, documentary filmmaking as it is. Um, I never really would have seen myself doing documentaries, but in a certain way, um, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely kind of opened up that, that, that door for me. And, and I've been kind of thinking about that. I'm not really too sure as of yet, just because there's still so much going on with this one. But um, I had a guy that used to work with me when I was in London and he just kind of approached me like, you know, he just knew that I was doing stuff. 
we, we weren't even like super close when we worked together. You know, we, we didn't really talk very often, but he was just like, Hey man, I've got this idea for a documentary I want to do, which was just about like a, I think like an unsolved murder from London or something like that. Um, so I just kind of thought it was weird. Like, Hey, now apparently people are kind of like, you know, reaching out to me about that as well. But um, I personally just want to travel the world. And I, I actually have an idea of going to, maybe more of like an episode documentary series versus a movie um, going to the happiest countries in the world and finding out like why they're so happy, like going to like, cool. obviously, you know, I think a lot of people hear about like Denmark, for example, but go there and like, and, and strategically interview people to figure out like, what is it about that culture that makes their society so happy um, and I mean, Canada is ranked up there, um, in some ways too. So, I mean, we'd have to <laughs> yeah, I was find... gonna say which countries are like the top 10. I'm wondering a lot head. of the, a lot, a lot of like Denmark, Switzerland, like Denmark a lot yeah. of those areas in Europe. Um, hmm. uh, and I, I think Australia too. So I just, I really want to be able to travel the world personally. And I think that that would be something that I could really speak to because of just my, uh, how much importance I put on positivity and the way that I want to, like, I want to be able to influence people and make, like help make people happier. Like I used to be like a sales coach and a life coach. And a lot of that went into like power of thought and how to like, just be in a better mindset. And so I think people don't really like, I joke with my friends all the time. We'll just be like, hashtag first world problems. Like, oh yeah, my fucking phone is my, I cracked the screen on my phone, you know, or, ah, you know, again, I got into a car accident. My Acura is in the garage for a few days. I'm like, okay, well, there's guys out there right now that are like trying to find out if they're going to be able to feed your family today, or like they're in a war zone, or they've got like way bigger problems than we have, we take for granted. And so we're over here being miserable and just being pissed off at the world when we have fucking life handed to us on a, on a silver platter most of the time. Right. So I think that our, our Western civilization has become so fucking spoiled. Yeah. That we don't have enough gratitude. That. Yeah. But also it's like, people don't realize like how different it's done in some other countries and the mentality of the people and the, the philosophy uh, behind it, um, which, you know, Western civilization really falls behind on. And obviously like, you know, like impoverished countries struggle because of poverty, but um I know to me, I just think it would be, it'd be a really fun and exciting experience, but you know, whether no, that not, series you described, that sounds like a really cool, uh, I would watch that finding out why the happiest places are, are so happy. It seems like a really cool question to ask. And, uh, and then JF, I'll be looking forward to the comedy specials that you'll be putting out. So, <laughs> well, I've actually, um, also started working on a documentary that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish because I don't know if you're familiar with the flapjack 10 story in Ottawa. Oh yeah, yeah, regular the, the Waffle House where people were performing or something. Yeah, and then basically one, of the, and I don't want to go too much into it right now, but uh, one of the club owners didn't like it, so basically whoever because it was across the street or something, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like on the same side of the street on Preston, and um, so basically they weren't allowed to perform, but because they weren't allowed to perform, they were banned for a year because they had performed this this one open mic. Because of that, they all those flapjack. 10 that I'm calling them, they opened up a bunch of different open mics around town. And I think that's the triggering moment that sort of gave Ottawa its open mic comedy life. Like, you know, Swizzles and Wellington Eatery was basically all those people that were, that didn't have any stage time. So they just created their own stage. And when I heard this story, I was like, man, that's would be such a fascinating documentary. And I've been tracking down like all the, all, all the people. And I interviewed like a few, a few of them wouldn't want to get 
in wouldn't want to be in the documentary because you know they still want to get stage time at this club and i want to get the the original club owner in the documentary as well to show like you know it's, it's all water in the bridge now it's kind of funny yeah yeah but there was like for real there was some animosity for like at least a year or two uh because of that so i just i just think it'd be such a cool kind of story of like it's almost like an origin story but like the the ottawa comedy community you know, you know what i mean and it's got a good name too i feel like it, it would catch people's ear what flapjack 10 yeah the flapjack 10 is like the hateful eight you know? yeah exactly yeah no yeah. Yeah. yeah i didn't mean to exclude you from that question actually just because you had talked about the doing the comedy specials but yeah I'm glad, they, I'm glad you brought that up yeah yeah oh man um well, I wanted to say, uh, I guess we've gone over most of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I was going to bring up that you guys had done Sober October when you filmed uh, when you filmed me for the documentary. I remember you guys saying that you had done Sober October, and I kind of wanted to know, how did that go for you guys? Just because it's something I've debated doing, but I always kind of don't at the last minute. I kind of find some excuse, and, you know, it's, it's a lot to commit to, really, to being completely stone-cold sober for a month. Well, it's funny because... Um... I did Sober October and then November we met up <laughs> for beers for my podcast and we're like, oh, yeah, I, was, yeah. <laughs> I was off. And November was bad. It was like, you just made up for it. <laughs> oh, you just doubled down. Over, no, yes, they call it Sober October and Bender November, you know. So. Yeah. See, yeah, you know, no, that's I, almost I why I've been afraid uh, to approach it. Yeah. No, I definitely did a lot of the good, the good work I did in October. But one, one thing I learned was uh, how much my sleep was because I was still recovering from insomnia. And I stopped drinking and I realized like how much of a difference like, I got, a, I got a sleeping pills, which was huge. Nice. So that was a big positive for me. Yeah. Like yeah, now I realize, like, you don't like, get I, a good sleep when you pass out, they say. No, you don't like for me now, like if I drink uh, a fair amount, like I'll go to bed, I'll pass out, I'll wake up at like four or five in the morning. And then after that, I'm pretty much not getting back to sleep. And I've kind of accepted that. But if I decide to have like some days where I just decide not to drink or have like a couple beers spaced out, I can usually sleep fine. Um, but it's been, it's definitely was really nice to kind of like really feel like I was like resolved of, of my insomnia during that month. So that was huge. That's awesome. Yeah. To know that you can do that. If you're ever really struggling, you can just cut out the booze for a couple of weeks and get back on that path. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about doing like a dry July as opposed to a sober October because it's weed that's generally been harder for me to cut out. I have been cutting down and experimenting with with doing it less in the last couple months and it's been okay. But um, yeah, I don't know if I could do a month of no weed. I mean, I probably could, but I haven't tried yet. But uh, dry July, it sounds easier for me to just say, okay, no drinking for the month, but I can still blaze, you know? Yeah, because drinking July is like a big part of yeah, well, that's why I, I thought about doing it a couple of times. And then it was always like, oh, but we're going to that barbecue on Saturday. Or like, there's always reasons to drink in the summertime. People just want to drink more when it's nice out. Yeah, no, I just that's did like, dry January. And that, for me, dry January is pretty easy because it's just like, I'm uh, it's a depressing month anyways. It's a depressing <laughs> month. And actually you feel better and you've been drinking over the holidays. You've been eating too much. And it's like, okay, you know, it's a new year. You, you yeah. She's fresh. So. I did it. It's almost like a, a cleanse. I'll do it once. I'll, I'm going to try to probably do like three months of a year intermittently going sober or something like that. Because I don't think I want to be ever completely sober. Yeah. I do know I have like, I could have a real drinking problem if I don't, you know, if I don't watch myself. I have an addictive personality and I have like substance, you know, that's, I know it could, it's a slippery slope. So I have to be very careful with that. Yeah, I can relate to that completely. Like, I think that for the most part, I keep, I mean, we to have a, like a medical 
I can get mine medical. Like I have all the cards for that to, you know, it's, it's, so it kind of puts you in a different category, I suppose, because I'm taking my medication, you know, but with drinking, I find the same thing. It's a slippery slope. I think I manage it. I'm responsible when I drink at least, but the older that I get, I find there's a lot of nights where I just, you feel kind of brain dead after having maybe one too many. And you're just kind of like, eh, what am I doing? This is, this is not where I want to be, you know, and it hits you harder. The hangovers get worse. The older I get, I find too. So it has less and less appeal to me, but I also find, like you said, the idea of like, you know, being in a program or something. And like that, that's a huge commitment to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say I have it so bad that I need to go to AA. Like, I don't think I'm that kind of person. I, I good for those people who need that, of course. But um, I just feel like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be to the point where I have to say, I can't touch this for the rest of my life because it has so much control over me. I want to be the one in the end who's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do a sober October or whatever, because this is a decision I get to make, but I don't want to cancel it and cut it out of my life completely and not have that option there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's such a huge part of our culture and has been it is, for yeah. basically like as long as man has been around and you think about it. So it's like, obviously there it's, it's so integrated into, into our culture that the idea of it going away, it's almost like, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're one, like I have a buddy who doesn't drink and it sometimes it's hard because like, there'll be a social event that's like, it's like, sometimes it, it revolves around drinking in a sense, like a barbecue could where it just, it really limits, you know, cause you're just like this odd person out, you know? Um, so it's like, but like, he's never had a drinking problems as much. It's just more of like, he just doesn't want to drink. He doesn't see the value in it to him. It was just a lifestyle decision. But then I have another friend who, you know, he would sneak in the bathroom and chug a Mickey of vodka. And then like, it's like seven 30 at night and we're all like, what the fuck's wrong? And he's like, just, just shit faced already, you know, and like he was his was like, you know, if you don't quit drinking, you might die. Right. So it was complete polar opposites, you know, and it's, and, but I think if you can find the fine line to realize like, yeah, like if I'm going to go to a specific event and I'm with people that don't drink, I cannot drink. And if I go to another one where we're going to do a kegger, I'm going to do a keg stand, you know, fuck it. Like, you know, like that's where I like to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, making it count, I find is a nice way of just like, if you, let's say you're like, hey, I'm not going to drink until Friday and then we'll watch a movie and, and make a night of it or whatever. Then when that time actually comes, you appreciate it so much more. And it's, and there's not as much guilt of like, Oh yeah, but I drank yesterday though, or like whatever. And then you start to feel like, you know, you're not taking care of yourself, which you aren't really. So um, yeah, I don't know. I do like the ability to drink, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, like you said, a slippery slope. And I think that it's, it's certainly unhealthy, even if you're not someone like, I'm not worried that I'm someone who's going to need to go into AA or, or, you know, die in a drunk driving accident. Cause I don't fuck with that shit. But, um, I do think that I'm someone that would start eating a lot less healthy, being lazy the next day and not working out and shit like that. That's the reason that I want to keep tabs on my drinking, just because I find it's a slippery slope to like not being the best version of yourself. And you also see a lot of people who are in AA, like celebrities or whatever, that, um, cutting everything out, was such a transformative thing for them. And they seem like they have their shit together so much. Like someone like Russell Brand, he's like Mr. Meditation yeah, yeah. guru now, you know? Um, so I have respect uh, Robert for Robert Downey path. Jr. Robert Downey Jr., yeah. Yeah, I have so much respect for that path when it's right for someone, but it's it's definitely, you know. Well, like I, I read the Russell Brand's book, Recovery, and it's, it's about the 12-step, but it's like his own kind of take and everything. And I mean, he was a heroin user, so it's much different. Yeah, some, yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, he's like, completely changed his life around and now he's like just so full of wisdom so brilliant it, it would have been a shame had he not you know gone off and like completely ruined his life so 
well heroin especially a lot of people amazing people have died from that shit way too young so yeah it's uh um, one thing i will say that's been helping um is uh is this you know and comes in a wide variety of assorted flavors you know <laughs> well, believe, the, new yeah. peach is, the new peach is is tip top oh yeah i just saw that yeah, yeah i don't well, think i don't drink pop like i I've, i eat very healthy um and i'm pretty strict with that too and to me it's like if i have two beers or three beers that's a hell of a lot healthier than drinking like pepsi or coke or, or mountain dew or shit like that you know like yeah so like to me like i have that water and like coffee and then like the occasional time whatever like there's other things you know or, or wine but like typically to me like i just i keep like black coffee you know and no refined sugar so that way i'm like whatever like i'm having a couple of beers like yeah you know it's, it's wheat and water like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it can catch up to you, but it's usually the the bad food decisions you're making when you're drunk that are really like putting on the belt loops, you know. Yeah. Last night I had a I had a a cold one with my uh, just chicken breast with hot sauce and and balsamic vinegar, zero calories, uh, with uh, just frozen vegetables put in a saucepan with some Montreal steak spice, just nice clean healthy meal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh dude my downfall is pizza though like i fucking love pizza so much I, I sometimes eat it a few times a week i'm not even lying but i then do like fasts when i can and i try to eat, make sure i eat my vegetables and and i exercise every day so or mainly i might take a day off once in a while but i try to do some shit every day um, but you got kids right so i mean you order pizza your family's eating it right to me if i order pizza yeah yeah they're gonna i'm either gonna eat a large pizza by myself which is not good or i'm gonna have pizza for three days you know so like yeah. I really only reserve it for when I have like, if I'm with people, you know, that is a good tip that I've learned is ordering less than you think you want. Cause I guarantee you the amount you think you want is the amount that's going to give you leftovers for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, which is not what you need. You know, if you don't want to feel guilty, I'm going to have pizza tonight. I'll eat the amount I need. And then there's nothing left to tempt me tomorrow, you know, for breakfast or whatever. <laughs> that is smart. And also when you're talking about like um, exercising and everything, I, I feel like this pandemic has really, for me, it's solidified like a, a ritual of things that I need to do to mm -hmm. feel good. You know, like every morning I meditate for 20 minutes. First thing in the morning I do either yoga or I found this, like, it's kind of like a break fit. It's called um, like sort of light, sort of flexibility movement in the morning. And then I take a hot, cold shower And so, like, I'm, I'm like, super regimented in a way that I was never before. Well, it's survival tactics, really, though, right? Your brain kicked into some sort of gear of, like, okay, like, these are weird days and it's starting to affect me and I need, like, a, you know, a system here that's going to keep my sanity and, and hopefully keep me healthy. So, yeah, exactly. And I, like, I'm, I kind of wish I would have found this out before, but, you know. This, yeah, that's, I felt the same way, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a silver lining of, 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 you know, a lot of positive things that can come from this. I mean, obviously some people just been just so screwed over and lost everything, businesses, you know, marriages, whatever. But, you know, I think it, it did force people to, to realize like that, you know, life is fragile. Things can happen that you would never predict. And then, you know, put yourself in a position where you have to, um, you know, find ways to, to solve these problems. I mean, people naturally, we solve problems. It's what we've done ever since, you know, the dawn of time, you know, okay, we have to build a, you know, fine foods, we build better, you know, hunting weapons and stuff. So here we are, people are facing mental health issues or boredom or whatever, you know, and, and, you know, we're seeing 
all kinds of, of surges and, and a variety of things because of it. So, you know, in a way it's like, we can be like, yeah, the pandemic really sucked and it did. Cause I mean, people died in it and it, you know, ruined a lot of things, but you know, we shouldn't just focus on that because a lot of very positive things have come from it. And I think it's given people like a lot of that, like necessary downtime to really like step back and like think about things and like prioritize things and realize like what's important, you know? And I mean, whether being like myself deciding to, you know, career change and open my own business or, you know, deciding to have better lifestyle choices. So I feel it's like, you know, either some people just let the you know, let the demons take over and they drink too much or they gained weight and they just decided to not, okay, you know, jump everything. on, jump on that. You know, they're, they're on the dock yeah. instead of on the boat. But I think that the people that are on the boat are going to be so much better off now. And we're going to yeah. have like a lot higher caliber people in all industries going forward, you know. It's weird though, because I feel like I've been kind of riding a wave that's been up and down throughout the pandemic where I have like weeks or months where I feel like, oh yeah, like I'm totally on the ball and I'm, I'm feeling really fit and healthy mentally and whatever. And then other months where I'm like struggling, I'm like, oh man, like when the winter started for me was when, you know, almost like right after we did J me and JF on the patio for that podcast of yours, um, which was happy hour, happy hour with sad comedians. Yep. Um, but yeah, when we did that, I want to say like almost right around there and and onward from that was when I started really feeling the pandemic finally caught up with me and I was still working out, but for whatever reason, I think, you know, it just starts getting darker out. Sun starts going down earlier. It gets colder. It just seemed like, yeah, well, the, the beginning lucky. of a shitty tunnel that we're not even inside of yet, you know? I know. I, and we got lucky because that was one of the last good days of November. And then yeah, it was like super winter. warm out. Yeah. Weren't you guys like in like polo shirts or something? Oh, yeah. We were like <laughs> beautiful. Oh, I was probably, I don't know what I was wearing. I don't remember. You skateboarded over there. and like, Yeah, yeah. I took a longboard. Yeah, it was it, such a nice day. And well, then, I think uh, it was the end of October as well. We were when we were filming Matt for, for the dock just outside Beyond the Pale. Like... We, we were all sweating like by the time it was done like his face like it was it was like it was like plus 22 or something like that it was really well, even hot. this winter has been uh pretty mild so far we've yeah. had a couple of really cold days but we've had so much sunshine that's what i love the most about this winter so far yeah that's yeah. the thing i need the most even if you're not getting as much vitamin d because it's further away or whatever it's still just i don't know something's motivating about a nice blue sky even if it's well a lot of what it is too is it's negative ions right i mean negative ions uh, that are produced from the sun and you get it from a lot of things too, like running water and stuff, um, helps to elevate your mood. Right. So when you have a lack of negative ions, um, which is kind of funny because you think you need positive ions for that, but it's, it's actually negative ions. Um, and that's, that's, that's a, one of the reasons too, why people are going to typically have more depression in the wintertime. Yeah. Well, it blows. <laughs> yeah it's definitely well, hey, at easy. least you guys at least you guys don't have a fucking curfew. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh my God. That's gotta be brutal. Yeah, well, JF was saying, like, I, I haven't had a hard time with fitness for the most part. You know, I have my, my lazy days here and there, but uh, meditation is the one I'm really trying to get my head around at this or my head into however you want to say that. Um, I've been practicing a little bit, but I do find it kind of difficult to just quiet your thought patterns when you're, I don't know, there's just so much going on in the world right now. And uh, everything is so weird and different that I definitely find it's hard to quiet down my thoughts and, and get to that calm zen spot you know i well, want to though you need it the most is when there's a lot you know oh i know yeah yeah i i don't know i'm not the worst off i've had a couple of good meditation sessions where i felt like i i was getting there you know and really uh starting to feel more normal because because if you haven't done it for a long time it feels so foreign 
and and that's a bad thing because when it becomes a natural part of your process it's people get into like a flow state and just you know you be your best version of yourself almost so i really want to be like you know bruce lee style like just really master that shit yeah and like when i talk about meditation with people it's like sometimes it's daunting like because you think you have to clear your mind but you're not going to be able to clear your mind like you're not a monk you're not gonna you know you're surrounded by all this stuff you're not a cave anywhere like so the best you can do in our society is probably just let the the thoughts pass without attaching yourself and chasing after them you know you're still gonna like meditate dude, dude i just heard the coolest uh, analogy by this uh, some sort of medical doctor who specializes in anxiety i'm sorry i can't remember his name at the moment but it was like uh, let go of the banana and it said imagine there's like a monkey with a, a clear glass in front of him and there's some holes there with bananas on the other side and the holes are only big enough for him to get his hand through but as soon as he's holding on the banana he can't pull out so eventually the hunter catches him because he refuses to let go of the banana so if you can just learn to let go of the banana, you can be free, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole. That was a lot like the ending of uh, the, um, Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they took it from that. I don't know who's the originator. Yeah. What of came that. first, the Holy Grail or the banana? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but I don't know. It's pretty, it could be like an old philosophical, mm-hmm. you know, adage or whatever. I'm not sure. Well, it's, just... And it's very, it's very, it's very true. You know, um, a matter of fact, I mean, like I, I recently, uh, you know, I've just had a lot of residual stuff from a previous relationship, which I think if anything was, was more even just based on like wanting to make sure that like, she was just, she was okay. You know, like, I just kind of felt like there was just this thing between me being like worried about her because of like wanting her to like land on her feet and just make sure that, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, it just delayed stuff for her financially and whatever too. And, uh, you know, and it just was kind of like, it was just hard for me to realize, like, you know, it's not, that's not my problem, but like, what's the point in worrying about something that's out of my control? You know, I can't do anything about it. You know, we've moved on, but I just kind of kept feeling like it was just kind of like holding on to me a little bit of just this sense of, of just, I don't know, you can maybe call it even like an unconditional love in a way. But so I think when it was kind of, I got a bit of to a clearing on that where I was able to kind of finally give myself some closure and realize like, Hey, you know what? Like she's actually, she's doing pretty good. You know, and I'm happy and proud of her, which is nice. But at the same time, like, you know, there's no point in, in thinking about it just because it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Um, and from doing so, it just really helped, again, my, elevate my mood, also better sleep. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of like that old adage, you know, if you, with the, with the butterfly, you know, let it go. Oh, no, I've never heard that. Just don't catch butterflies. I don't know. Something like, if you know, something like. If oh, you like chasing waterfalls. That's what you're thinking. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh man that's hilarious shit I'm, I'm only noticing the time now we've been going at this for a while so uh i'm gonna have to wrap it up soon i gotta go help out with the kid but um i want to ask you guys what i've been asking everybody at the end of these which is, for this season which is if you could have dinner with somebody that you've never met before alive or dead uh who would it be and why from any time period doesn't matter but it could be someone that's still alive right now if, if that's what you prefer so that, that just reminds me of uh, Anthony Jeselnik. He's like, all right, I would, he's awesome. This, this chick's just like, well, if you could have dinner with anybody like that, alive or dead, who would it be? And he's like, uh, Caligula. And she's like, really? You wouldn't choose me? And he's like, okay, yes, I would choose you and you'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I would, I'd probably say, uh, Oh, I don't know. It'd be kind of a toss up between, um, I want to say Dwayne Johnson. I just think like being around him would just be phenomenal. You know, he can just learn and Barack Obama, same thing. I just feel like their energy and their presence is just, is just so fantastic. But, uh, it's, I would also kind of say like Hitler, but like before he went crazy, <laughs> what, <laughs> I thought you were going to say to kill him or something. He's like <laughs> poison him. And yeah, you could put poison arsenic in his wine, you know? Yeah. No, I'm saying, but think about, think about how Hitler, he went evil, but think about like, so you mean you would try to like talk him into like a more positive mindset and maybe he would no, no, not, I think not just start the before, Nazi regime before that, that evil set in, I think that he was a very brilliant man. You know I mean? Like most people cannot accomplish world domination. And he was like this close, like he's obviously a smart guy. And that's why like, if you compare him to the other ones is the other two are not evil. But so I was going to say, if you get him before he, he, that switch went off, I feel like he, there, there's a lot you could learn from that guy. I guess I thought, you yeah, like, do you think he would, if you went at the right point and you, and you stopped him from becoming so disgruntled and angry and full of hate, do you think he would have like done something great for the planet? <laughs> like, I think so. I think, I think stopped he global had warming or something. If he, if he was, if he had the capabilities that he had, you know, but he, <laughs> but he put them in the right way, that guy would have done great things, you know, it completely would have changed. The world just, in, this in feels like so weird. It's like, and welcome back to complimenting <laughs> Hitler. Um, <laughs> This is bananas, but okay. I mean, it would be interesting, I'm sure, at the very least. But I don't know that I would, I feel like I would want to punch the guy the second we sat down, you know, like, uh, or take him out, you know? Yeah. I think the liability of him becoming what he became would be always outweigh the possibility of, oh, no, we saved yeah. him. Yeah, we changed his attitude. He's cool. Don't worry. No, Adolf's cool now. He's cool. Don't yeah. worry about you'd, it. You'd have, you'd, have no. to, you'd have to pretend you'd that. You committed genocide. That. I don't think there is any way that you cannot have that at least sort of in you. Maybe not from like when you're a baby, but I would say it, that has to strike in your youth at some point to really set its claws into you. It seems weird to me for someone to be like 30 and be like, yeah, I'm feeling evil and kind of murdery now. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't think that happens. Maybe if you're driven to the edge, I guess, but it seems a lot less likely than someone just being, having something wrong in their brain where they're, they've got the serial killer gene or whatever, you know? Yeah. No, I'm just totally, I'm obviously kidding. I, 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 I would, Hitler would not be in my top three. <laughs> <laughs> just taking it out, retracting that statement. You're going to get canceled now, man. You're going to get canceled. People are going to say that you're, you're a Hitler supporter because <laughs> you want to have dinner with them. Pre-evil Hitler. We got to stress that. We can't stress that hard enough. Um, but again, I, I would, it's an interesting thing to wonder about people like that and like, have they always been that way to some level? Like the nature versus nurture argument, essentially, I suppose. But it's so extreme with, with somebody like that, you know? Because you got to... Well, hey, they made a movie about it in Deadpool 2, you know? What do you mean? Well, that's like the whole premise. Go back in time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Cable. My bad. The time travel with cable. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I don't like, would you kill baby Hitler? If that was the only point the time machine could land, they're like, yeah, we got you in front of him. We can take him out, but he's a fucking six month old baby. He doesn't have that little fucking mustache yet. Yeah. Goo goo gaga. Can you do it? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know if I would do it, but I'd probably support it, you know? It's a messed up question. I don't expect yeah. you to answer, but it's something I've heard comics talk about before. And it's, it's definitely a valid, like what the fuck kind of question to think about as yeah, much sure. as I don't want to think about doing a horrible thing like that. It's like, you could save so many lives, you yeah. know, you could save millions of lives. It's, I don't know. 
That should be one of your questions at the end of the podcast. Like, would you save six million lives, but you have to kill one baby? <laughs> would but you? Baby's Hitler. It's yeah. a great, yeah, mood to end the episodes on. Oh my yeah. god. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, sorry, JF. I, I am interested still in who you would want to have dinner with. Yeah, not Hitler. Um, no. I, yeah, I, was, I was thinking about like because you know, a lot of famous people, but um, I think my great grandfather, who I've never met. Um, and I heard like some what I've heard from my dad that's like he was considered to be like a philosopher in his town, and he was like, so I was telling my dad how I've been doing like hot cold shower because it's a it it helps with my my temperature regulation, and I, I don't feel cold for the rest of the day because you know it brings warmth to cir- blood circulation to your extremities and all that. And he was like, oh yeah, you know my grandfather, so your your grand great great grandfather used to every morning in the winter would go walk barefoot outside take snow rub it on his hands and then come inside and warm himself and then he would say that he would never get cold like he would never get cold hand or feet so he had he was doing hot cold showers like he was like you know i want to say like my great grandfather's like was the wim hof of the, of his times but i feel like he might have been like super interesting kind of guy to talk talk to and and uh I think it'd be cool to yeah talk when your relatives or one of your great grandfathers. I'm like I mean I could say geez. no, but seeing your lineage for sure, yeah, that would be really interesting. As, yeah. Assuming they could speak the same language, because who knows where your lineage might go. But I think it'd be cool, yeah, even to meet someone further back, like 300 years, like someone that you, you haven't even heard stories about, but you know, like man, I only exist because of you. And well, so I did some genealogy, and I, I lived in Paris for a summer, and uh, so my great grand great 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 grandfather's from Normandy, France. So I would be able to speak the language, you know, I could speak French to him. Uh, but he was born in 1608 in Normandy, wow. and I actually traveled to Normandy, and I went to the original town where he was from. It was a small town called Saint Marie de l'Hôtel, and I met the mayor of that town, and, and like I told him my story, it was I was looking for my grandfather's birth certificate, and we actually went through the archives together. He brought me home to you know he. His wife made me dinner and all that. It was like this big. It felt like a family reunion. It felt like a long lost cousin or something that I never met before. And uh, I actually saw like some some tombstones with my last name on it from the people that stay there. But he was the first one to come to Canada in 1630s, and he's the only one from my lineage that was the one that came to Canada. It's like all the Farnets in Canada are all from this one guy. Wow. And I would love to hear his story because that must be a weird kind of story. Like he was. 30 something or 20 something whatever and came to canada just on a boat and like you know <laughs> that's insane. So, yeah i'd love to meet that guy that'd be cool yeah genealogy is really interesting my mom uh got really really into that i don't know she's been doing it forever now but she like went same thing she went back to like england or places where her roots were and and met with distant relatives and in one case i think they were trying to she was trying to locate someone's ashes that had been buried at the wrong spot so they were trying to like Hmm. set things right and put it where it was supposed to be or something like that um so yeah i definitely think that that's that's really cool and the older you get the more you become interested in history i think that's personally speaking i didn't really care when i was in high school i remember thinking history was kind of cool like oh the pyramids and you know there was some stuff i was kind of interested in but now i catch myself all the time on youtube like watching historical footage of like New York in 1916 or like weird shit like that. I just like seeing humans from other time periods and like how they acted and behaved and just realizing that in the video that you're watching, it's the present moment for them. And every, everything is the most modern right now, like thing it could possibly be, but we're, I don't know. It's just cool to look into the past 
Uh, and I really appreciate that more the older that I get. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm reading one of the books I'm reading right now is called uh, 1491, and it's basically it's the year pre-Columbus, and the whole book is about the Americas before Columbus, and it's like the super detailed, cool. like they have like conversations from the like you know accounts from the Incas and everything like that, and uh, you know and what what America looked like from the like, you know, First Nations perspective before Columbus came and you know screwed everything up but it's like, yeah stuff like that that i wouldn't have never been in high school yeah i was probably too high in history class to even care to like oh whatever but yeah yeah i was just watching a video on uh the seven wonders of the ancient world of which only one still exists and it's like the great pyramid at giza but the yeah. rest of them are all super interesting and impressive and you know they're just drawings and people's interpretations because they don't have photos but um it's really cool like one of them is the colossus of Rhodes, which was this like huge dude that they built over the archway of like a seaport that would have stood like i don't even know how tall i'm not going to try and uh, yeah. paraphrase that because i don't remember but um, yeah, I don't know. Shit like that just really cranks my gears these days. I don't know why. Yeah, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's the one that they debate may not have actually ever existed. Yeah, well, who knows? It could have just. Been I think it's a little a little funny that you know all these English and French come over and we you know decide to take over the land and then what we introduced to the Native Americans was horseback riding. It's like that was really? like, that was something that they didn't naturally do, right? So really we actually had these like really shitty primitive weapons like muskets and stuff. The advantage was that we rode horses. We teach all the native Americans to ride horses. Obviously they became a million times better at it. Yeah. And then they had fucking bow and arrows and then they just started slaughtering all the Brits. It was like, well played, well played. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was their place, you know? Yeah. What else but it's kind of like, you, you're like, they're teaching them something and they're like, wait a second. And it's like, they just turn around and like use it against them. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah I didn't know, know that. I, I would have assumed that they had already figured. Yeah. Out. I think it was the Apaches. Um, I remember hearing about the, the, there's a book about it. I forget the name of it, but Joe Rogan was talking about it on his podcast and a little bit about their history and, and yeah, just basically how they just like really like just slaughtered. Like it was a pretty big bloodbath of a war where they were able to make up for a lot of the, the bloodshed that had previously happened. And then of course, I guess it leveled out as um, the Brits weaponry improved or something, but shit. That's, yeah, that's why I'm scared. Like my last name is Brown. Like, although like my direct ancestry, like my dad moved here from England when in his thirties. So like all my, all my dad's family's like back in England, um, except for my great aunt. She, she, uh, she, she lives in Ontario. Um, but I like, when I going to go back like hundred, 200, 300 years, I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's probably a lot of like slave owners or something in my family lineage or something. So, but it's really hard to trace, like for me to do my genealogy with my last name, like it's hard. <laughs> and like, wouldn't most people, if you go far enough back, I would think most people in North America around that time, if they were white, they probably yeah, had yeah. slaves, especially in, in the U S but I think probably Canada too. I don't know the history behind that, but I would assume you know, that was going on here too, to some degree. But, yeah. but I mean, I think like mine's more like, oh yeah, my ancestors just went around the world and pretended like it was theirs. And they probably went to India and took over, you know, like, and just like that, that's what like, that's what the Brits did back in that. Yeah. The days. British were just like making everything. They just showed up and were like, we're yeah. going to stay here for a while. <laughs> that's crazy. You know, uh, talking about the world, I just watched some video that I thought was super crazy where it was explaining how like all the maps that we use, because of the the earth being a sphere that they have to kind of choose 
the best version of a map that they can do to represent everything. But the one that we use, which I don't remember what it's called, but the, the main sort of one that most people use for Google Maps and all that, it's very, very inaccurate when it comes to the sizes of things. So like they show that like Greenland, when you see it on this map, it looks huge, but you can fit Greenland into Africa like 20 times or something like that. Like it's, or like, um, what is the other one? Indonesia, all the islands there that are kind of stretched out, they stretch across like the continental US. You know, like it's, it's mind blowing. I, I just didn't realize any of that. Yeah, you should really check it out. I thought that was the raddest yeah, stuff. Yeah, I remember seeing all the distortions of that, yeah. Yeah, like it's not accurate at all in some cases, which is, but, but the half- Well, you're also, you're also forgetting the part two where like, you know, you get to the edge of the earth. <laughs> oh God, don't even get me started on flat earth. Jeez. <laughs> That's a whole different discussion, yeah. I can't even believe that shit with the ice wall crust like a big pizza. You know what though? I I do like this is where JF is like you guys. You know what? I looked way. into it and actually, but I, but I like sometimes that people come up with these stupid movements that make us sort of question what we know. Because you know, how do you know the Earth is round? And then you have to like start googling like, oh yeah, shadow is in the sun and all that. Like, yeah, also, you forgot about like physics or, or like you know geometry or whatever. And then you're like, oh yeah, I I just assume i knew these things but i don't really understand how these things work like i you know and then yeah. start talking to people they're like all these crazy like talking about anti-vaxxers and you're like yeah vaccines are good and they're like well why are they good and you're like oh shit i have to start looking into it and they oh yeah the studies are showing that blah, blah, cure polio like you know the problem is some people won't look into the studies or they'll try they won't understand it and then they'll just form their own conclusions and be like mm -hmm. No, Earth is just flat, like it just is. and Or they'll hear facts that are wrong. Uh, but I get what you're saying. Like, how, how do you know unless you're a scientist and unless or a mathematician or whatever the case is with, with said conspiracy that you're, you're wondering about? You never really can prove unless you do some serious, serious research. And even then, you're kind of still trusting that the people that did the research know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah, but I mean, like, I think, I think they're trolls almost they're they're like triggering our minds like they're it's almost like we're becoming too complacent we're just believing yeah. everything. so flat earthers are like a kind of a moment of like okay whoa what what is yeah. that you know it's sparking curiosity again. are you yeah. calling bill nye the science guy a liar <laughs> no i don't know i feel like 99 percent of all that stuff that i know came from him that's all you know like like literally oh, i thought you were saying he was a flat earther i'm like no way no 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 i mean like in terms of you're talking <laughs> about like where like like everything that i would typically resource was like you know that and like stuff in school but like i i felt like hey if bill nye said it was true of course it was true you know i know he's an atheist i heard something of him talking about how well, he, i mean of course he would be an atheist that would i mean i think a lot of there are spiritual scientists out there maybe maybe less of them but i've heard that there are some people who still you know follow a certain religion but then there's still people of science as well i i also agree it seems like those things would clash a lot but um but hey you know power to them whatever well do they is that is there is that restraining order still intact you know for what uh just a little little simpsons reference <laughs> oh i didn't get it my bad uh there's one where uh there's a restraining order put on science and religion and they have to stay away from each other like something like oh. 500 meters. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious that's good yeah, I've been seeing a lot of people arguing online about The Simpsons that like the only only the first eight seasons are good. And I don't know, I would say maybe there was a decline in quality, but I feel like a lot of those people are being extra nostalgic because I've watched some random seasons later on and they're different. But I think they've done a good job at adapting and, and trying to stay sort of modern. And, you know, like if you watch it's true, if you watch an episode of The Simpsons now versus 
you know, the first 10 seasons, it kind of feels a bit different, but shouldn't it, if it's been on for that long, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, like it's just like any show, especially when you consider the change in writers, but I feel like the first 10 seasons always get that rap, but it's like, if you take somebody who's never seen the Simpsons before and you introduce them to all the Simpsons, their opinion would be different, but like we grew up on those first 10 cents. So it's like, that's where I think that's what I mean. I think some, I mean, not to say that those aren't great episodes because they really are. And there definitely are some stinkers later on. I guess the long winded point I'm making is that I've been surprised finding myself laughing really hard at some of the newer stuff that I've seen some of these Facebook groups where people are so like hardcore against, Oh, everything after season eight is fucking terrible. It's like, there's still a lot of good humor in there. You know, you you should, uh, yeah, you should actually, go on that podcast for um uh, it's called purple monkey dishwasher that al babcock has yeah i've seen that comedy yeah it's a lot of fun because yeah you just basically get all these simpsons buffs talk about their favorite episode and talk about simpsons and so i mean if you're a simpsons guy i love simpsons yeah i don't don't know how um how much i've watched like every episode because probably after season 12 or something is when i think i started just growing up and doing other shit and i didn't have the time to watch it every sunday night anymore or whatever but uh, yeah, I would like to go on that podcast because I definitely feel like I know it enough about The Simpsons to have some good points. And pick, picking a favorite episode would be really freaking hard, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's so many good ones. I like a lot of the Sideshow Bob ones. I always found those pretty funny. Uh, the Cape Fear one. I like, yeah, when you watch back movies and you you watch the old episodes where they literally like remake a movie into a Simpsons episode. I, I think that's, that was brilliant, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, they had the greatest references. Simpsons it really has had a lot of golden eras back. I guess the, the earliest ones are kind of the best. But, um, yeah, I don't know if I could pick a favorite episode. That seems like really, really hard. Because <laughs> the Halloween ones are great, too. Yeah, I was going to say all the Halloween. The shooting. I mean, I, I probably can't think of them off the top of the head. Frank Grimes, that's a great one. Oh, yeah. I like when Homer goes to space, too. There's so many. I could probably, like, just sit here and list in dozens of them. It really it really is one of the best shows, man. Like, it, it really is. You know, it holds, so many great still, characters. Still, it too. holds up. It really holds up. Yeah, well, I guess that's a weird tangent to end this podcast. I don't even know how I went down the Simpsons hole, but... Unifying uh, theme. Everybody's, you know... Hey, what other podcast goes from Hitler to Flat Earth to Simpsons? That's yeah. all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, we talked about some interesting stuff for sure. It definitely felt like a chill session. And um, I'm glad to be able to talk to you guys and everyone who's watching this should, if you're watching it on the day it came out, then come out to Yuck Yucks tonight and see the first of two premiere nights for Comedy 19, The Last Laugh. Um, it's a really cool documentary with a lot of cool uh, opinions from comedians and, and people who are really involved in the industry. And I don't know, I just think people are really going to dig it because it was really well done and I, I'm impressed with your work and I'm really eager to see what you come out with in the future too, both of you guys, because you're both super talented people. So um, thanks a lot. And yeah, sorry, we didn't get time to do the music stuff we talked about before. Oh, we just talked for like two hours. I got to, I got to return <laughs> to my family, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, uh, but I would love to collaborate with you on something musical, man. Yeah. I'd love to jam uh, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It'll be easier post COVID obviously to obviously. You know, get together. Oh, and Scott, you're a musician as well. Yeah. 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 We'll come up with something, maybe a comedy song we all do together or something. Anyways. You do man. Thanks so but, much. Uh, yeah, thanks yeah, a lot Take for care. taking the time to talk with me, and uh, I'll see you guys on Monday or today, good, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, peace out. Peace all right, out. bye.